0: Hello, and welcome to an all new exciting episode of Batman Nightcast, the show that chronicles the greatest comic book adventures of the Dark Knight Detective throughout his long publishing history. I'm Ryan Daly.
1: And I'm Chris Franklin.
0: And we are back with two more issues of Detective Comics, continuing the legendary run by writer Steve Englehart that we started the last episode. We're kicking off this episode with Detective 471, which partners Englehart with the artist Marshall Rogers. Chris, where would you rank Marshall Rogers on your list of all-time Batman artists?
1: He's definitely one of the faces on the Mount Rushmore of Batman (laughs) artists. So uh, I would say, like, probably, honestly, it would probably be like uh, Dick Sprang, uh, Marshall Rogers... Neil Adams and Jim Aparo. That's just off the top of my head right now. That's probably who I would pick. But then I think, oh, what about Dick Giordano by himself? And then and, 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 and what about uh, Jerry Robinson? And what about Bruce Tim? And, you know, so, yes. <laughs> so, so God, it's got to be a much bigger mountain. OK, but Marshall <laughs> Rogers... Marshall Rogers is definitely up there, and I have actually, I actually met Marshall Rogers and uh, and and got to uh, meet him when I was in uh, in high school. He showed up at a, uh, and we talked about this on Secret Origins, which we got, like one of the first times we podcasted together was was on the Secret Origins podcast, which I actually did the Superman episode, but I, I was scheduled to do the Batman one and. Right. And and Marshall Rogers was uh, the artist on that issue number six, I think. Secret Origins number six, and uh, he um, he came to a comic convention in Lexington, Kentucky. It was one of those little, barely a comic convention. You know, it's in a little hotel ballroom with like ten tables. And I, you know, I remember it was like the same day as my grandmother's birthday dinner that my mom was having. And I was like, oh, mom, I swear I'll drive up there, go to it. I'll <laughs> be back in time. I swear I will. And it was a one day thing. And she didn't give me any grief, but she's like, OK, because she knew that this guy was like a big hero of mine. And it's like this is going to be my only chance to meet him. And it was actually. So uh, and then Cindy ran up there with me. We were dating then and, and, and uh, we ran up there, met him. He was super cool. Got him to sign a bunch of the comics I had. And and uh, I was really as I think that might have been the first comic professional I met, actually, because yeah. I was, you know, in high school. So, uh, but yeah, so I got to, I actually got to shake hands with Marshall Rogers. It was, I, I think, I peaked actually then <laughs> <laughs> at sixteen or seventeen, whatever. <laughs>
0: Uh, I'm sure Cindy. So yeah, I like, I'm sure Cindy I like, loves hearing that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I like Marshall Rogers. In other words, <laughs> yeah, in other
0: words, yeah, uh, yeah. He would def- He would be on my Mount Rushmore too. And I agree that there needs to be more faces on that mountain because uh, I, I remember getting the the question uh, on Twitter uh, not so long ago, maybe a couple of months ago at this point. Um, and I thought about you know my top four, and I, I think I had. Rogers, Bray Fogel, mm-hmm. and David Masachelli actually. Um, oh, wow, just yeah. for that little brief time I just I I absolutely loved what he did with it, like looking at Batman in in year 1. But I mean that's leaving off Neil Adams, and I mean just since we've since we've rebooted and, and kind of redirected this podcast, I've read almost all of the Neil Adams Batman stories just in the last couple of weeks, and man, some of those look really really good. I I, I don't know if I can keep him off the the Mount Rushmore. And then you mentioned Bruce Tim, I never even would have thought of him, but yeah, absolutely. So God, yeah, I mean, why are there ten faces or something on that? <laughs> but,
1: um, it's going to be yeah. a mountain range, Mount. Mountain range, Rushmore. Um,
0: (laughs) Even still, though, even like if I had to pare it it down, I mean, I, I think, I think Rogers would be on there. He'd, he'd probably be in the top three for me. Um, There's just something about it, and I think it. no, it was probably before I read that Secret Origins issue. I think the first time it would have popped up on my radar was when I got the greatest Batman stories ever told uh, collection, mm. which would have been circa 1990-91. It was after the movie came out when I was getting all of those. And I I remember like flipping through some of those. And I I mean I skipped over some of the golden and early silver age stories when I first got that. I was just like the, the art styles didn't appeal to me then. So I, I kind of looked for something a little bit more more arresting, a little bit more attention-grabbing for my sensibilities at that time. And definitely one was the um, – oh, what, Roger's Issue, was it that uh,
1: – I think there's two. There's like the Deadshot Ricochet and then isn't the pro story with, by Daniel yes, O'Neill with yeah, the – yeah, the Death Strikes at in,
0: Midnight and 3, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, 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 um, yeah.
0: This looks really really cool. I was like how come the the other issues that I was getting like don't look like this? And of course those were issues by Bray Fogel and Apparel at the time that I was probably collecting it. So, <laughs> yeah, I I have always thought he was like really really cool and I've read more of his stuff from outside of the Batman realm uh in the last couple of years like I finally uh read through his entire Silver Surfer run mm. which was only like 13 or 14 issues that he did with Steve Englehart uh in the late 80s after yeah. this. Uh, I actually, I heard an interview with Joe Rubenstein, who was the inker uh, on uh, the, those issues. Um, and he said, he said for one thing, it, it was like the fastest book he ever inked because just Silver Surfer in space, like there's no, there's no like lines or anything on the Silver Surfer, so it's just you know, it's just like this basically this naked guy with not a lot of detail or crosshatching or anything on a black background. He's like, ah, this inking, like he's like I did an entire book in like one weekend, uh, but also like he he mentioned how like Steve, or sorry, he mentioned how Marshall Rogers would have very very specific notes for the inking for the coloring where he wanted to apply zip tone what types of effects he had uh, for that book and for everything so it's like i mean we will see i mean as as marshall rogers went back through the coloring process like later on and everything how specific he wasn't just the penciling he really kind of directed the entire art piece of his issues
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing to think that he had very little comic book work before starting this. You know, I mean, very few, very few comic jobs before this. I mean, he's very young, very new, and he just kind of hit the ground running. Although we'll talk about that later. There were some some folks in the D.C. office that did not care for his and Terry Austin's work, which is – it, it mind-boggling, but uh, yeah, they, they were there. Were some people that didn't like it, and, and we'll we'll we can we can get into that as we go along a little bit.
0: Uh, another Marshall Rogers story that I read not too long ago. Um, I read it on Marvel Digital Unlimited. He did uh, a Daughters of the Dragon story in the Black and White magazines. I think it was Bizarre Adventures. Correction: The story appeared in the Deadly Hands of Kung Fu issues thirty-two and thirty-three. Um, it was a two-part story written by Chris Claremont, and it was like the first story with Misty Knight and Colleen Wing as a solo, basically when they weren't just backup characters in Iron Fist or something else. Um, that was just like a really cool kind of female James Bond type of thing, um, but just like showing Misty Knight and Colleen Wing acting badass. Um, getting back to, uh, Batman and Detective, uh, we're going to cover Marshall Rogers' first issues on this run, but these are not actually Marshall Rogers' first work with Batman. In the issues before this, like back in the 460s, there was this running backup story about the calculator. And I actually covered these, I think, on my Flowers and Fishnets blog many, many years ago because uh, Black Canary was involved. And uh, and anyway, it ended up culminating in the issue before what we covered, Detective 468, in which Batman took center stage uh, in, uh, in this fight against the, the sort of new calculator.
1: I said, well, you know, it's kind of funny you brought that up because. Uh, I got a book called Comic Book Implosion. It's been out for a couple of years, but it's a uh, Tomorrow's book written by Keith Dallas and John Wells. It basically covers the area of the DC Implosion, which was supposed to be the DC Explosion, and that was right when, uh, right after basically the Engelhart Rogers run. Uh, but it, well, Rogers was still working on Batman stuff. Uh, but it actually talks about how uh, there's there's some excerpts in here. That uh, Joe Orlando, who was the basically the D.C. editorial director at the time, it, uh, Terry Austin shares a story of how he gave Marshall Rogers such an ass-chewing for the art job on Detective 468. and uh, And basically Austin was waiting out, and it was like two kids in the principal's office. One was outside the door listening to the kid getting yelled at the first kid. And basically he said that, you know, he owed Rogers a lot because Rogers took the full brunt of how ticked off Orlando was because a lot of people in the DC office thought that their style was way too off the DC house style they didn't like it, you know. They 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 needed to, you know. It wasn't professional looking. It it wasn't, you know. It it, it just didn't fit in with Ed DC. And by the time Rogers walked out, he was ashen faced and just, you know, beat down. And and Orlando was just too exhausted to even say too much to him at that point. And uh, the funny thing was, though, I've got the actual physical copy. I won't say floppy because it offends some people. But the physical copy of Detective 471, which has letters about 468, and the, all the letters are like, wow, these guys are great, you know. So Joe Orlando, great artist, great editor, but he apparently didn't know what the the, the readers of the, the day wanted because they were clamoring for more. And uh, Julius Schwartz, who was the editor of Detective And Vince Coletta, I know Vince Coletta is, is a name that often, you know, when you say Vince Coletta, you know, there's a hush that falls over, uh, comicdom, but, uh, he, he was the art director at DC at the time, which is amazing to think, you know, because he is notorious for being the man who erases (laughs) artwork to get to meet deadlines, um, but uh, he was a champion. Him and Julius Schwartz were champions for these guys. So we got to thank thank both of them for pushing these guys through, or we wouldn't have a Engelhart Rogers Austin run because somebody like Joe Orlando would have put the brakes on it before it even got started. So I
0: wonder what their <laughs> next conversation was like after after that yeah. after the letter started coming in.
1: Exactly. I wonder. You know, it's so probably all oh, these kids today. They don't know good art. If it you bit them in the ass or something. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, man. Well, thank, uh, you know, bless <laughs> bless Vince Coletta in this case. I, I don't know if I would ever say that again, but uh, yeah, way to – to actually see some quality, some talent. Maybe the fact that he wasn't inking it himself. He was like, oh yeah, this is great. He's like, <laughs> he, he recognized great artwork. He just knew that he had to sacrifice it if it meant getting the books out on time.
1: Yeah. That's right. Right. There you
0: go. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, well, uh, since we've got two books to cover, and I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about them, and we've got a lot of feedback, we are going to skip over our usual schedule uh, first promo break uh, and dive right into this one. Uh, so, the first book that we are looking at is Detective Comics 471. Uh, it's cover dated August 1977, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the on-sale date was May 31st of 77. The book cost 35 cents and sported a cover by Rogers and Austin. And the cover shows... Wow. Um... Batman looking quite aghast as he stands over one unconscious body, when in the foreground we see kind of over the shoulder, the, in, in profile, a man ripping what looks to be sort of a, a, a plaster or a fleshy like face mask off of himself uh, to reveal the identity of somebody below. And if you're a longtime comics reader, you would be able to figure out who this is by his profile, by his glasses and his signature facial hair. Batman is shouting you, and this guy is saying, "Yes, Batman, the dead yet live." What do you think of this cover?
1: You know, I, I, you know, of course, this cover is iconic because it begins the run, and I, and I like it. I, you know, it sells the comic. It's exciting. It sets up a mystery: who is this guy? And I mean, you, you would have had to been in the comic game a long time to know who this guy was because he <laughs> hasn't been around since like nineteen forty forty one or something right, like right. that. So. But my, my my minor criticism of the comic is the way the staging is. This is my one criticism for this whole issue is is, and it's minor. But it's kind of hard to tell. This guy Batman. Spoiler warning. This guy Batman standing over is supposed to be a monster man. He's like mm-hmm. supposed to be like eight nine foot tall, and it's kind of hard to tell. I mean, his head's bigger. It's about the size of Batman's torso. But the way that it's staged, it's kind of hard to tell that he's a monster. You know, that he's a giant yeah. basically. That's the that's my one criticism of it, and basically is is that because it definitely it definitely sells the story, and I kind of like how Batman's face is framed between the the biggest opening uh, hole of the goo that's that this man's pulling off his face. It's really kind of disgusting looking. What he's it looks like you know something from the Thing almost, where yeah, a few or, years or, ahead
0: or clayface <laughs> or something like that. It could have been a clayface imager. but yeah, definitely something from the Thing. It's he's yeah he's ripping. What looks like his skin off of his face with uh, uh, another set of skin underneath, but of course, we'll see it's just a kind of rubbery latex mask of <laughs> Nobody does masks like the Batman <laughs> like the guys in Batman. that's you. right. We, we will see more of it this time, but um, uh, an interesting note, especially given how like uh, concerned Marshall Rogers is with coloring. If you look at a digital copy of this cover, um, either with like comiXology or like if you uh, actually like did like a Google search or something the digital restoration messes up Batman's nose mm-hmm. his yeah. nose is recolored to look like it's flesh tone like the mask goes up around his nose <laughs> and it's like <laughs> wait what?
1: <laughs> Knockoff Batman.
0: <laughs> Have you not seen Batman before? That's kind of an important part of his map, but yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. On the original cover, it's it's highlighted blue like it's supposed to be, right? So yeah.
0: <laughs> righty, getting into the story called "The Dead Yet Live," and it's written by Steve Englehart with art by Rogers and Austin, letters by John Workman Jr., colors originally by Jerry Serpe. Julie Schwartz was the editor. Rupert Thorne, the head of Gotham City's council, and secretly most of the city's organized crime, too, holds a meeting in his smoke-filled private conference room. He recaps for his underlings the events of the last two stories involving the creation of the villainous Dr. Phosphorus and his defeat at the hands of Batman, and then Thorne tells his men that it's time to kill the Dark Knight. Thorne's lieutenants offer various counter-arguments, but the boss won't hear it. He tells them he has a plan to finish the Batman, but he's interrupted by a suspicious noise coming from the fireplace. His man Bruno inspects the fireplace and looks up the chimney, but doesn't see anything. The reason for that is Batman just barely managed to climb up the chimney before being caught eavesdropping. On the roof, Batman acknowledges that he is not working at 100% peak efficiency since being irradiated by Dr. Phosphorus. He swings down to the Batmobile and drives back to the new Batcave hidden under the Wayne Foundation building in downtown Gotham. There, he tells his faithful butler Alfred that he can't self-treat his wounds. Bruce plans to check into an exclusive and very private medical facility called Grey Towers for treatment. He calls Silver St. Cloud to explain that he's going away for a couple of days, and Alfred notes the sound of genuine affection in Bruce's voice and wonders if Silver might finally be the one to win Bruce's heart. The next day, Bruce Wayne goes to Grey Towers, a Victorian-style mansion operating as a clinic, and meets the chief of staff, Dr. Todd Hunter. The doctor has his nurse, Magna, show Bruce to a private room. She tells him to sleep until the doctor is ready for him. Bruce scoffs at the idea of sleeping at noon, but Magna suddenly slams the door shut, plunging the room into darkness. Instantly, a powerful sleepiness overtakes Bruce and he collapses. In his sleep, he is assaulted by nightmarish visions of bats and snakes and a monster with guns, and the specter of death and Dr. Todd Hunter and Magna watching him as he fights to wake up. He wakes up hours later and goes to the door, finding it locked. An orderly refuses to let him out, or even believe that he is Bruce Wayne. The orderly says he's not in a clinic, but a mental asylum. Later, Silver St. Cloud comes to Grey Towers to visit Bruce, but she is turned away by Dr. Todd Hunter, who tells her Bruce is being treated for radiation poisoning and can't have visitors, for a week at least. Later, Bruce gives the orderly his food tray without having eaten what he assumes is drugged food. Having his wits about him again, and having checked the room for cameras, he draws the Batman costume out of a hidden chamber in his suitcase. He dresses in the crime fighter's costume and goes to work escaping. He dribbles vials of acid on the bars at his window, then rips them out. He climbs out and up to the roof while trying to figure out what Dr. Todd Hunter's mad scheme could be. Suddenly, Batman is attacked by a pair of giant monster men. Even outnumbered, though, by foes twice his size, Batman has no trouble knocking out the monsters. Below, Magda and Todd Hunter hear the commotion. Magda looks out the window, just in time to see Batman swing down and kick through the glass, sending her flying across the room. Batman tells the Doctor he's onto his scheme, but Todd Hunter calls the Dark Knight's bluff. If he really knew what was going on, then he wouldn't be surprised when Todd Hunter rips a flesh mask off of his face to reveal his true identity. That of Professor Hugo Strange, long thought dead. Strange villain-splains his evil plan, that as Dr. Todd Hunter, he puts dozens of rich and powerful people like Bruce Wayne under his mental control, turning them into his slaves, and sometimes into ginormous monsters. Batman knocks Strange to the floor, doing the standard, you won't get away with this, but Strange shows no sign that he's beaten. As Batman looms over him, a venomous green mamba slithers down from the ceiling and bites Batman on the neck. Batman drops from the poison, but Professor Strange administers the anti-venom, explaining to Magna that he wants Batman incapacitated, but not killed. Later, Batman regains consciousness to discover, in horror, that Strange and Magna have removed his cowl, exposing the truth that Batman is Bruce Wayne. To be continued. Alright, what did you think of this episode?
1: Oh, well... (laughs) The, <laughs> I, I mean, this this is one of those that I mean, unfortunately, I kind of had what happened in this story spoiled by later comics that I read first. So I knew that Hugo Strange knew who, that Bruce Wayne was Batman. And it was uh, because spoiler warnings, Hugo Strange does come back at some point. Uh, and uh, so I, I knew. But but still, when I read this for the first time, that it was still shocking To see that, yeah, he just straight up unmasked Batman. I mean, it's like, you know, you always wondered... And all the death traps Batman was put in, why didn't they unmask him? I mean, like on the TV show, you know. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they played like you know. I, I know, particular one time the Joker was going to unmask them on TV. That was when he was doing uh, polyagi uh, the mm-hmm. the clown, you know. Uh, but but uh, all those times when you were a kid, it's like, well, why wouldn't they just unmask him, you know? And and, and here, you know, Englehart says, yeah, he would unmask him. He just, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and it's great. I mean, aside from all the other just wonderful. The, the, the aesthetic and, and you know the the writing and the art just being, you know, pure classic, it it just the shock of the fact that, wow, somebody just straight up unmasked Batman. I mean, it's a hell of a cliffhanger. It's it's great.
0: Right, right. Uh, yeah. It's uh, just going right from the beginning. Um I, I remember when I read this collection, I think this was actually my introduction to the comic book version of Rupert Thorne. But mm. I knew him from the animated series first. Right. Uh, so this was quite quite a little jarring change. I mean, I, I kind of recognized him. The body shape was similar. But, yeah, I mean, in, in the animated series, you know, he was always kind of had the the smart black suit kind of impeccably dressed And here. He's kind of a little bit slovenly. He's got his sleeves pulled up, his tie undone. Like, he looks more of like a corrupt politician, which is true, which is the case. Whereas right. in the cartoon, he was just a gangster. He had no... Uh, i don 't think there was ever a sense of like a legitimate front for him, like unlike somebody like a Roland Daggett in the cartoon, yeah, um, but I really like the opening scene and how Thorne kind of does a bit of world building kind of they they discuss almost the value that Batman brings to the city, yeah. um, by being this public presence as like this crusading crime fighter in public. It brings more tourism to the city, like people who might be afraid to, because of Gotham's like crime reputation. But they're like, "Well, Batman is there, so we must be safe." And if they if they remove Batman, then the feds would come down harder on them and everything. I think this is interesting little detail and nuance that you can tell. Like Steve Inglehart has a bit more of a sophisticated uh, like you know thought process into what into this world and what's going on. So.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of almost like, you know, because Batman spends his time fighting, you know, costume lunatics, that these plain clothes criminals can kind of do their operation, you know, behind the scenes and and uh and all the splashy, the jokers, the penguins, and and riddlers—they they get all the news media. And and I do like the fact though this this ties into the last issue, last set of issues we talked about, where Batman gave that civic-minded speech to the uh, the burglar <laughs> he caught, you know, the safe cracker that you know it's like this is you know this is my this is one of the best cities in the world, and mm-hmm. you know, and it's like you kind of get that impression here that yeah, like Gotham you know in new york i mean i i in no offense to anybody from new york but my understanding was new york in the 70s was a very rough <laughs> <laughs> Very rough town, yeah. uh, you know, and I mean, I know they've done a lot to clean it up and make it more tourist friendly and family friendly and everything, but it was, you know, I mean, the I mean, watch any seventies uh, cop drama and uh, movie or drama, and you'll see how tough New York was, right?
0: <laughs> I think half the people who worked at Marvel and DC Comics have stories about being mugged in New York oh. <laughs> in like the seventies.
1: So. Oh yeah, multiple times. Sometimes that's yeah. like I know I think Frank Miller was mugged twice. Yeah. I mean, so it's like you know that's kind of what change he get changed his like where he became hard-boiled, you know, basically after he was mugged like two weeks in a row or something insane like that. I know I mean, Denny O'Neill was mugged, too, so yeah.
0: Joe Orlando was, I mean, that we just talked about beforehand. I mean, that was famously part of the inspiration for his, his re-envisioning of the specter when he took that over uh, as, right. a, as editor of that book. He just, he was really, he had he, he needed to process his his violent thoughts about what he would do to criminals <laughs> after that, and so he, he had uh, Fleischer and Aparo do this really uber-violent Spectre series.
1: I'd like to have a giant pair of scissors and just cut that guy right in half. <laughs> <Exactly. Yes. laughs> yeah. yeah, The opening's so atmospheric, too. I mean, the, the room looks real. You can just, like, smell the cigarette smoke or the cigar smoke in the air. I mean... And and Marshall Rogers was an architecture student. Uh, that's what he studied in school. So, I mean, his his interior of rooms and build and exterior of buildings is just impeccable. He's like one of the best that ever drew a building in a comic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, these rooms look like you could just walk into them and like, you know, go over into the corner and, you know, you know, find some, uh, little hidden detail in a coffee table or something. I mean, it's in the, the ornate doors and just, yeah, it's, it, he's definitely setting the, the, the scene. It's just, uh, uh, these guys are just l- like literally hitting the ground running. It's right. it's it's amazing. Yeah.
0: We uh, speaking of like continuing off of what was going on in the last two issues, Batman is hurting. <laughs> he's he's in rough shape after fighting Doctor Phosphorus. I mean, this is some continuity. A couple of days, or almost a week, has passed. He says now, um, but he's still trapped. Like his his ribs are bandaged up. And he's got like these burn marks on his on his stomach. Um, he's he's hurt. He says he's not he's not operating at uh, peak efficiency. He's he's wounded, and this is uh, important. And we'll actually see this. Uh, this comes up in our the feedback that we got from last one. It's like you know the Batman like being radiant. That would actually really uh, be kind of dangerous. I'm like yeah, they they do recognize that. Maybe not as much as they should, but that becomes a the kind of the premise for this one. Is Batman has to seek medical treatment because of his his uh, fight with Dr. Phosphorus and what happens when Bruce Wayne has to lock himself away in a hospital.
1: Yeah you know it's kind of funny though Englehart's writing Justice League of America and so Batman's got friends who have you know alien technology and advanced <laughs> technology like Superman and Hawkman and I'm ray. sure yeah. there's purple healing rays on you know yeah. paradise. it was Paradise Island, Island back then yeah yeah, yeah Paradise Island and, and you know he knows Ray Palmer and guys like that it's like you know, you might just want to beam up to the satellite, Bruce, and say, "Hey, can somebody run some tests on me?" You know, but so <laughs> but then that would you know it would have killed this story. So you know, it's it, again, you know the 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 heroes are members of the Justice League, but you know we we can't always go hit our JLA signal device because then it would ruin their individual stories. So yeah, <laughs> I do like the bit where Batman's hiding in the chimney. That's that's really cool. I like that. That's something that. That, you know, that you can really see that this, this run was very influential on how the animated series guys handled Batman. You know, yeah. that's that's something definitely that you could see straight out of – and I, I think they actually did do that. Uh, they copied this bit on the animated series at different points or something similar to this. But uh, – uh, and, and, and Rogers gets a chance when it shows Batman leaning up against the chimney to – the cape's wrapping around. It's b- billowing, but part of it's wrapping around the chimney and yeah. – and, and that—that's one thing that I mean. We'll get into, but you know, Marshall Rogers. I, I think, and this—I think I've said this before, but I think he is the greatest cape artist Batman ever had. <laughs> I mean, because he—he keeps it relatively realistic, but uh, I mean, it's exaggerated a little. It's not Todd McFarlane, but he does—he does more with it in the weight and the sway of the the cape f- flying around his shoulders and. Billowing about than I think just about anybody.
0: Yeah, it gives a little bit more character too. It, yeah, you know, it, it, it really enhances his silhouette without looking cartoonish. Yeah, yeah. Which, I, as much as I like Brave Fogle, did crazy things with a cape that were, that were so Oh nice. yeah,
1: definitely. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean that the the famous uh, cover where he's in the alleyway, you yeah. know, and the yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely. <laughs>
0: uh then he goes home we get it again more of the architecture of like the cityscapes and everything we get the famous wayne enterprise building with or yeah with uh the tree growing in the middle of the towers and everything the physics of it have always been a little bit weird but i love the look of that building it's just very
1: identifiable i think terry austin i think I, i don't i wish i could find out where i read this i think terry austin may have designed that building Okay. I seems seems like I read that somewhere. I, I I need to look that up, but it's it's stuck in my head somewhere. I can't remember where I read that, but yeah, it yeah, the whole I think the elevator's like inside the tree or something like that or there's some that at one point they said it was and yeah, it's it's kind of strange, but yeah, it's very iconic. It's it it it's uh there's a reason Migo made a toy of it, you know. Basically. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And we get, an I mean, we're basically not not hiding anymore. We have a bat cave built underneath the building, which I'm fine with. Like I said, like it's it's not the the bat cave that I grew up with, but I've come to learn to to love it and kind of accept it as tactically, strategically, uh, it, it makes sense. So, yeah. Uh, and on the bottom of page six, we get a shot of Silver Saint Cloud in bed. <laughs> <and> yeah. <Yelp. laughs> uh there's, yeah, yeah. There, there's this guy i know i don't know if you've ever met him his name is shag uh he would say she's hot
1: oh she's definitely hot i mean and and rogers dr- draws her uh he she's very curvy i mean if you really follow like she's like basically got her she's twisted basically and her hips are you know like her hips are up as high as her elbows basically mm-hmm. and and uh they color it like she's got a nightgown on, but I and, and Rogers later recolored it that way too because I looked at the digital version on DC Universe. But I always kind of get the impression she was just like basically laying there in her bra. That's kind of what it looks like, honestly. So, yeah.
0: and, I mean, like he drew like there's there's weight to her and heft to her bosom. It's like,
1: yeah, oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yep. This was lovingly rendered, right? right. <laughs> and what's implied in their conversation is just. Yes. Uh, yeah yeah she says, well, after the other night, darling, I'd hoped you'd at least be suffering exhaustion. <laughs> yeah. it's like, I know That's not I exactly am. subtle, yeah
0: exactly. It's like...
1: <laughs> it's like wait,
0: wait I, but at that point i'm like wait a minute has she seen him naked i mean he's like his his body is kind of messed up i mean maybe I mean, maybe batman we doesn't.
1: haven't got the alan brenner joe staten uh, uh, autobiography of bruce wayne yet that established that batman was scarred up like yeah. uh so so we got a you know i don't know alex ross ran with that but we we haven't established that batman's covered in gun gunshot <laughs> wounds and knife knife stab wounds and you know scars and scar tissue and so yeah,
0: but <laughs> And the answer is Batman and Bruce Wayne do it in the dark.
1: It's there you go, yeah. <laughs> uh
0: then he goes to he goes to the Grey Towers, he meets Dr. Todd Hunter, kind of I don't know if Ingelhart knew somebody with that name, kind of a weird name, I think. And then uh yeah, he's got this plaid jacket on, which I really kind of like, this plaid like almost knee length peacoat. But then Uh, this, uh, when he gets trapped in and he's, he's drugged and he falls unconscious, this montage page, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: I I mean, I, I look at it and I'm like, that's like 60s, um, uh, not, not Starlin, um, uh, Frank Brunner? No, um, well, yeah, actually it would be a Frank Brunner too, who also like worked with Steve Englehart, but also, um, why, who's the escape artist Why can I not think of his name oh Jim
1: storanko yeah Steranko, yes yeah your, your best friend that you got
0: tra- that you got locked in a, in a elevator with in a death trap yeah
1: um, right right yeah exactly I was yeah. like well he can get us out if we yeah. if it if it, it stops right and
0: it might be it might be the the different colors and like the giant nightmare text like word kind of like spreading down there but I see I see Steranko in this I also see Frank Brenner too actually so yeah it's yeah. definitely it's a crazy montage but
1: yeah, it's like a little bit of Will Eisner too <laughs> with the text going in, and of course they all come from Will Eisner. But yeah, I mean it's like, and it's kind of cool because you're seeing you're seeing Batman's origin. You know, you're seeing the Waynes dead, and yeah. and and Joe Chill looks like a zombie, and and uh, and it is kind of weird because you know you can almost look at Todd Hunter and Magda there. If you if you squint, they almost look like Rachel Ghul and Talia looking yeah, at him.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> So it's kind of because you can't really tell. That's his uh, Todd Hunter's little mustache. It kind of looks just like a shadow there, right. oh, and right. so his his hairline looks like uh, Raish And well, you know, she looks quite a bit like Talia, but and also Marshall Rogers. You know, very he draws a very curvy Magda too. She's very he's he's enjoying drawing these women. I think you know <laughs> so. most comic artists do. You know so. Um, especially from from this period, but yeah, this this is uh, this could be a blacklight poster right here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: um, and also, I mean, like within the within the uh, the imagery and everything like that, we get this snake motif, which will actually foreshadow what comes at the end of this issue.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot about snakes in these two parters. We yeah. this two parter. We we'll get to that. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> Uh And then, you know, in the next scene, again, uh, picking up what we know, what little we know of Silver St. Cloud from the last one was she's not a dummy. She kind of picked up on, on Bruce Wayne that with his hair being wet, she's kind of suspicious. And now when he locks herself away, she's, you know, taking it upon herself. She goes to see him. Um, and, and visit him, even though she's turned away. I mean, this will pick up. I mean, she's she's got a, doing a little bit of her own investigating. This will certainly come up again later in the next issue. Um, but the fact that you know she, he didn't just you know write her off with that one scene with her lying in bed waiting for Burst to come get her. She's actually taking some initiative
1: yeah oh, yeah definitely we've you know we're 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 getting we're starting to understand what Bruce sees in her beyond her physical uh, you know attributes here and and this scene where you know she goes to gray towers gray towers looks like a fully realized building uh like we said, and it made me think that uh I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on a podcast, but there's a superpowers board game from 1984 called the justice league of America skyscraper caper. Hmm. And, uh, the box art, the figures on the box art are by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Yep. Praise be his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, the rest of the artwork, the cities and, in and, and inside this box, you basically build a little city and it's got these little cardboard buildings. All the artwork on that is by Rogers and Austin. Hmm. Uh so that's another Batman connection they have. They never draw Batman in this thing because it's all the style guide art right, but they draw all the buildings and all the little people along the side of the buildings and i I think it's it, their name's on it somewhere i i because I remember being a kid and figuring out who this was by and being like super excited nice. <laughs> uh, who yeah but but uh but yeah, so I mean this gray towers i mean this this whole scene where she's going to the building it it i mean it it looks like it's almost like somebody could take this and go like actually go you know build this place Mm -hmm. (laughs) these comic book panels and oh and and dial it back real quick just we do have they do answer the age-old question for batman boxers or briefs (laughs) he's got you know at least the earth one batman had the decency to not go commando like his uh the current you know the uh, Batman damned Bruce Wayne, you know, mm-hmm. or Batar Wayne, thing as we called it. So yeah, so he's he's got uh, he's got boxers on, folks. Batman wears boxers. So there he you go. does.
0: <laughs> and he casts a Batman esque shadow, even when he's just Bruce Wayne. I've always liked that little effect.
1: At least. Oh, I love that. That's one of my that's one of my favorite. That yeah, it's just I, I always love that as a kid. That's kind of like that's the Batman visual of you know Peter Parker's Spider Sense with his half. Spider-Man face. I, I just love those things like that. Yeah. Uh,
0: and then on page 11, a kind of famous set of panels with him getting dressed, throwing the clothes on and then the cowl and everything and buddy. And that final panel, uh, pretty signature, maybe, maybe like the definitive Marshall Rogers, Batman image, um, or, or maybe, I mean, it's maybe in contention with the, the title page from uh, the secret origin. Um, but we get the caption, and thus is born the weird figure of the dark, this avenger of evil, the Batman, as he's all yeah. in costume.
1: Yeah, that's lifted from Golden Age comics too. So that's that's another callback, you know that. And and the, we've got like John Workman's doing the the little round uh, mm-hmm. letters, the circle with the letter inside for the first letter in the captions, and yeah, it's it's yeah that that's that's iconic. Yeah. <laughs> it's great
0: uh and then you know he uh he busts out the window with the acid he climbs up to the top and on top of the mansion then we get the what the hell are these guys (laughs) What, what happened here why is he being attacked by two giant monsters um which is something else again if you're familiar with the golden age that might have been a tip off of who he's gonna end up fighting
1: yeah yeah definitely yeah yeah it's it's uh and i love the you know the the shot of when he first sees them and the I mean the the two steeples on the the top of the building. Just I mean, holy cow! Those are wow. That's a lot of detail. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it just it totally sets the sets the stage. Yeah, these giant these giant like like nine foot. I mean, they look like they're about like nine foot tall sure, monster. Yeah, meat. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whew.
0: Within the fight, I mean, the bottom of the fight when he kind of like throws them both away after banging their heads together, you do see. Uh, Rogers' is sort of like style that, like the, the anatomy, of the arms, the, the legs, they're a little bit longer than natural, perhaps. I mean, the, it's not perfect anatomy, but it's stylized, and it's stylized in a way that works, that gives it more of a sense of character, that doesn't look ridiculous, that doesn't look amateurish. It looks like just a, a, his sort of impression of the human anatomy, which is really, really interesting.
1: Yeah, you know, it's like early Rogers, I mean, here, and his his style evolves even as we're going to cover these books, but there's there's some similarities to to early Joe Stanton art, too. Yeah, um, I see that, yeah. That's they, kind of a long, because he, he kind of had more of an elongated style, especially early on, and... And uh, Rogers is, I'm thinking, made me think because of the, the the comic book implosion book, the the DC explosion ad that ran that had Staten Art. All those people have legs that are about 10 foot long, you know, <laughs> and they stand, standing there. So it kind of makes me think of that a little bit. But yeah, it's, but it works. I mean, like you said, it, it works in the visual of comics. It's, it's kind of like how Bruce Timm's. You know, body design of, you know, giant broad shoulders and little tiny legs works on the animated series, you know, so.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Once Batman kicks through the window and confronts uh, the doctor, he rips off his face mask, his actual face mask, to reveal that. Professor Hugo Strange, I thought you were dead. And we get the editor's note, since all the way back in Detective number 46, no less, from Julie Schwartz. It's like, and you've turned men into monsters before. Another editor's note, Batman, believe it or not, number one.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He
0: thought he was dead. So yeah, I mean, like, like if, I, I am trying to think, like, Batman, Detective 46, and this is 471. It's like, would anybody have recognized who this character is? Like, they make such a dramatic thing about it. And, like, why did Steve Englehart want to bring this back? Like, like what made him decide to resurrect this long dead character instead of doing something different?
1: I don't know. I, I guess he just really came at it from a back to basics approach, and uh, I guess he kind of thought, you know, well, they they did they basically did back to basics when they they uh, you know sent Robin off to college and they went more for the Grim Avenger of the Night type thing, but he's. He's really trying to actual bring it. It's like, okay, you guys did that in the 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 you know the basically aesthetic of it. No, I want to go back and actually pull in real Golden Age, the mechanics of the Golden Age, the characters, and yep. you know the kind of the narration and and just make really make it feel like straight up. This is a modern version of Golden Age Batman, and uh, so he went way way back uh, to very pre Robin Detective Comics, and of course the last time they fought. Um, I bet the batman number one story robin's already there but it was uh it was intended for an earlier detective before robin got there so he's not in that story but robin's present in detective 46 when he uh when uh strange uh dies the last time we see him in the golden age but uh i do love that he pulls the you know everybody's always talking about you know batman pulls his fake mask off and his cows underneath well strange Has not only his beard underneath, (laughs) his glasses are underneath.
0: (laughs) Oh, gosh, the masks work. And we'll see more next time, too. Um, Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, and and the ego on this guy, like how he talks, he makes it sound like he and Batman for years have had this really long history of like of one upping each other and challenging each other, and like being the the like the, their arch nemesis, and Batman is the only one who can offer him a challenge, and really building this up, and I kind of wanted Batman to just say, "Dude, I barely remember you." <laughs> it's like that was so long ago.
1: But. maybe you've heard of this guy called the Joker. I don't know. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, it's like, he's kind of like my number one guy, you know, it's like, yeah, you know? so, it's, like, <laughs> yeah it's, it's like, it's kind of like even
0: on my TV show, dude.
1: <laughs> yeah. It, it's like, it's like some guy that like, you know, you've worked at a place for like 20 years and some guy you work with, like, like on a assignment, like two you interacted with like two or three times in the office, and they they left like nineteen years ago, and they show back up, and they're like, ah, it's me. You remember me? How great I was, and how important you know the work we did together. And like, dude, I barely what, what's your name? I kind of recognize your face, but I don't know who you are. You know, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh but yeah, strange. Is, I mean, he I, he's a he is a very wordy sob, but I mean, he's. we'll find out part you know why he's basically doing it but you know he's he's probably talking to batman to to basically set up what's going to happen to him to a point but man he is he's he's high on batman too though he thinks batman is just the bees knees you know he's like he's a he's an opponent worthy of him and and he they're they're just equals you know they're they're matched intellectually and he's the best you know child they're the best challenge for each other and They've got a bromance going definitely. It's one-sided, but strange <laughs> yeah. strange's got a bromance uh, romance hard on for Batman, no doubt about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: And the snake gets him and he drops and then he wakes up unmasked and that is our big cliffhanger finale. So.
1: Yeah, and that's like I said that was really really shocking. You know, I like how we see like uh Batman's got like uh he's almost got like a sweat uh sweatshirt uh <laughs> neck cuff, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. thing going on like uh, uh, the collar you know, I, I kind of like that, it's kind of you know, back when comic characters wore cloth you know <laughs> so.
0: which, which again, I really wish we could see something like this in the movie instead of like the armored Kevlar bodysuits that we're getting but,
1: yeah, yeah, that uh, you know, that Batman Dead End movie, that, that fan movie, they'd look pretty sweet, <laughs> you know, when they of course that guy's like a muscle builder from right, right, you know it's right. like crazy but yeah i just just backtrack a little bit i did want to mention one of my favorite panels is on page 14 the second panel right before batman swings in that that shot of batman swinging down is as, as magda's looking up at him yeah and just the way the cape is and oh that's just that's just awesome and and i, I feel like mcfarland definitely was was paying attention to uh so Rogers, when he drew, he he did this and it's like, man, that looks great. But it looked even better if I added fifty feet of cloth <laughs> to both ends of that cake. Yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. You know. Yeah, uh, it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but yeah, this is just uh, yeah. It's it's it's. I mean, this super. We we talked about the energy last time, but I I, I feel like the the energy is like amped up even more because these these guys, you know, Engelhart and I mean Rogers and Austin have have just you know they've they've got you know, wow we're not just doing a we're not just doing a filling we're actually doing the the Batman series and Detective Comics and we're going to show them what we can do and man they do <laughs> yeah.
0: all righty. We're going to take a promo break right now, but we will be back with Detective Comics 472. Don't go away.
3: Monthly, monthly, monthly! It's Action Film Face Off!
4: Hello, I'm Jason the Weasel Skull Albrecht, and I'd like to tell you about a podcast I do with my brother, Jared Albrecht, yard sale artist.
3: Action Film Face-Off!
4: Yes, thank you, Jared. Action Film Face-Off is a podcast where my brother and I, who are both military combat vets...
3: Jason was a Navy SEAL!
4: Jason was not a Navy SEAL. Jason was a military intelligence wing. But anyway, in each episode of Action Film Face-Off, we select two different action films.
3: Some of them have Chuck Norris.
4: Technically speaking, none of them have had Chuck Norris yet. But it could happen, because we use a randomizer set between 1970 and modern day to select our two films. So you'll always get two films, each from a different year.
3: Our randomizer has spikes on it.
4: We use a Google random number generator, so it does not have spikes on it. And we put the films into our Video Dome arena.
3: It also has spikes.
4: It does not have spikes.
3: (laughs) But we discuss the
4: films and score them through six different rounds of criteria.
3: I score Bond films very high.
4: Okay, that's true. But anyway, by the end of the episode, we crown one of the action films the champion of action film Face-Off.
3: Next episode, Jason bites a bear. (laughs)
4: Jason is not fighting a bear, but please give our show a listen. We're part of the Longbox Crusade Network of Shows.
3: Pat Samson killed a man with a sword once. Ah!
4: I can neither confirm nor deny that statement, but you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and most podcatchers under Longbox Crusade, or you can subscribe to just our show by searching for Action Film Face-Off.
3: Come see the blood fly!
4: And that's action film face-off. We do, indeed, invite you to come and see The Blood Fly.
3: I just said that.
1: Okay, we're back, and now we're going to cover Detective Comics number 472, cover dated September 1977. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it was on sale June 30th, 1977. On this cover by Rogers and Austin, the Batman's lifeless body floats before what appears to be a tombstone with a ghostly image of Batman's silhouette surprinted on it, and the words The Batman is dead. Long live the new Batman. What do you think of this one, Ryan?
0: Well, if it really was the new Batman, his fingers should be razor blades like Freddy Krueger, and he should have like a cybernetic helmet mask or something like that, because that was my new Batman when I was getting hit.
1: (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um,
0: I like it I like it I, I it's not I don't think it stands out quite as much and I think that's just because of the muted blue colors I mean that's just like when you're looking at a cover usually reds yellows greens they pop more uh, so just the the choice of colors I mean it's I get the intention because even like the 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 Batman Profile along the the masthead with the Batman's Detective Comics. That Batman looks gray instead of blue. It almost looks like it's washed out in memory because he's dead. I mean, it kind of gives mm-hmm. you that that ghostly funeral type of feeling with like the 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 tombstone looking thing behind you. So it definitely has that image of of this is like a grave, this is solemn. But also, just by its nature, I think it kind of washes itself out, and it's not really so distinct so i like it but it's not catchy i mean it's not like it doesn't make me want to grab it off uh, the rack necessarily just based on the cover it's not bad but it's just not attention grabbing
1: Mm, okay i I actually i actually really like this one because i think it's 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 a pretty radical departure from most dc covers at the time there's no word balloons and no captions because they work the the batman is dead long live the new batman into this tombstone shape so it looks like it's chiseled into the tombstone uh it even looks chiseled in it's like embossed in it so i i think it's you know at the time there weren't a whole lot of comic covers that look like this so i mean i think maybe just uh it, it does kind of again have a little bit more of a steranko-y kind of quality about it you know um so I think it, you know, I think they're kind of pulling the same thing they pulled on the, uh, the, the nightmare page we just talked about in the previous issue. So I think it's, I think it's actually pretty powerful, but yeah, I get what you're saying. The colors and stuff don't, don't grab you as, as the previous issue, but between the two covers, I prefer, I prefer this one myself, but mm-hmm. you know, your mileage may vary. So, <laughs> okay. Getting inside. I am the Batman. Uh was written by Steve Englehart with art by Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin. And letters by John Workman and originally colored by Jerry Serpe and later Marshall Rogers. And the editor was Julia Schwartz, although he's not getting credited uh, uh, in these issues, which is really strange. Because, dude, if you're doing this stuff this good, even if you're Julia Schwartz, take credit for it. OK, so <laughs> in the Wayne Foundation penthouse, the Batman unmasks, revealing the face of millionaire Bruce Wayne. But shockingly, Bruce Wayne and two unmasks, revealing the face of criminal scientist Hugo Strange, who declares, I am the Batman. Strange tells his assistant and nurse Magda that no one but Batman could challenge him, and none but himself could defeat the Dark Knight as he did, and usurp both of his identities. Strange knew Batman would eventually stumble onto his plot to blackmail wealthy Gothamites, turning them into potential monsters under the guise of a posh health clinic. But even he couldn't guess one of his patients, Bruce Wayne, would in secret be the Batman. In the Grey Towers building, one of Strange's monster men throws a captive Alfred into a cell. The faithful butler is shocked to find his master Bruce there, drugged and barely hanging on to life. He vows to help him, while Hugo Strange assumes Wayne's day-to-day business activities, unloading stocks and sending Wall Street into an uproar. Strange's foolproof plan to make millions and ruin his foe hits a snag when Bruce's girlfriend Silver St. Cloud drops by. Strange only knows her as the girl who came to visit Wayne at the clinic. When Silver questions him for blowing her off, he abruptly ends the relationship. Infuriated, she slaps the fake millionaire and storms off. Suspicious that Bruce wasn't acting like himself, Silver once again visits Grey Towers and receives an icy reception from Magda, who refuses to divulge any information on her discharged patients. The naughty nurse then contacts Strange, disguised as Bruce, who tells her to take care of Miss St. Cloud and accelerate their plans. Silver is making plans of her own and calls Hudson University to contact someone Bruce had spoken about, his youthful ward, Dick Grayson. Dick listens intently to Silver's worries and suspicions about his guardian, but he then blows her off, telling her that Bruce can take care of himself. Silver is disappointed in the young man's callow response, but she doesn't suspect that Dick is indeed concerned, and is soon rocketing out of his van on the high-powered motorcycle of Robin, the Teen Wonder. In the secluded phone booth, a disgusted silver hangs up, only to see the striking lightning outside illuminate a duo of attacking monster men. Back at Grey Towers, a groggy Bruce begins to come to, but he is still too weak to attempt an escape. In the real Wayne's home, Hugo Strange gloats about the money he has already plundered from his foe, but continues to praise his enemy's dominance of Gotham by both day and night. But despite his admiration, Strange admits to himself that Batman is too dangerous and must die. He and two of his monster men travel across town to an abandoned theater. There behind bulletproof glass, Strange announces an auction to sell off the secret identity of Batman to the highest bidder. Three interested parties, unable to see one another, throw an opening bid of $10,000 apiece onto the theater floor. Strange sets the auction for the following night and the minimum bid at $1 million. Strange leaves confident in his plan to fleece both Bruce Wayne and his enemies. Whoever wins the secret will find Batman already dead, and Strange will be long gone. But Strange's revelries are short-lived and he and his monstrous entourage are attacked in the street by Boss and his men, who take him hostage. A sleeping Alfred is awakened by a familiar voice at the barred window. Robin learns of his partner's condition and then tells his old friend to hang tight. Two minutes later, in the flying form of the Teen Wonder, launches into the den of Magda and the Monster Men, his smoke and gas bombs disorienting the giants as he mops the floor with them. After a failed attempt at assaulting Robin with a knife, Magda runs off. Following her boss's orders, she grabs an emergency hypodermic needle and enters Bruce's cell. Alfred refuses to let her harm him and struggles with her, resulting in Magda accidentally injecting herself. Her body begins to grow and contort, changing into a monstrous form. Robin swings into the room and kicks the bestial beauty in the head, knocking her out cold. The junior half of the dynamic duo isn't too broken up on Magda's fate, given her plans for Bruce. After complaining about the use of snakes in Strange's romper room of death, he vows to take down the madman in a similar fashion. In the sub-basement of City Hall, Thorne supervises the torture of Hugo Strange, trying to force the secret of Batman's identity out of him. Bruised and bloody, Strange refuses to give in, telling Thorne he isn't worthy of the Batman or his secret. Thorne's men continue to beat Strange, but he refuses to break. After several more beatings, Thorne asks again, but Strange's resolve is stronger, as is his admiration for the Batman. He feels he, and he alone, is worthy of the secret. And succumbing to his wounds, he takes it with him to his grave. Thorne is puzzled at strangest loyalty to the man who was his arch enemy. You'd almost think he was the Batman. So what did you think of this one?
0: Well, it's a Batman comic without Batman.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that's right. (laughs) (laughs) It
0: is. (laughs) Um, Bruce Wayne is never in costume. It's, uh, we get... um, we get uh Hugo Strange in the Batman costume in the beginning but even that goes away and then we get Robin comes in and saves the day. It's really cool. It's a really fun issue. A lot of stuff goes on. He he resolves stuff from the last storyline while even still managing to set up things for the future plot lines. Um but it's kind of it's very atypical because like Bruce is really sidelined. He's drugged the entire time and he doesn't He doesn't wake up and exact his, you know, like like bring Hugo Strange to justice. That's not what happens in this one. Like,
1: no, for all
0: intents and purposes, Hugo Strange beat him, and that was the end of their this confrontation. Like he, like like if this was the final death of Hugo Strange, which we know it's not, but in this way, he won. Like he he beat Batman.
1: Yeah, yeah, but his, you know, it's his own. Hubris over beating Batman defeated him, too, because he, he left himself open to, to attack by, right, by right. Thorne, too. So, yeah, it's yeah it's definitely, when you sit back and look at it, I mean, it's, it's a showcase for the supporting cast. I mean, he even brings Robin in, and yeah. this is one of the best showcases for Robin ever up to this point. I mean, you know, he... Robin comes in and and saves their bacon. I mean, he really does. I mean, you know, this is, you know, Ingolstadt's uh, you know, definitely doesn't have the view of Robin the boy hostage here. No, he's uh uh he's uh, you know, and, and they even said he the Magda even comments he fights like the Batman, you know. Uh and we'll get into that more as we we go panel by panel, but uh you know, page by page, but yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really when you just sit back and look at it, you're like, "Huh." you know batman never showed up in this book but you don't miss him i mean that's the it's so good and it's so well done that you don't miss him uh, i mean like you said you do see him on the opening splash but it's it's not bruce wayne though it's it's hugo strange so <laughs>
0: and we get the the triptych of panels with uh, batman and then he takes off the mask and it's bruce wayne and then he takes off that mask. You go strange underneath with the full beard and everything. It's like, he okay, he doesn't have the glasses this time around. But also I'm thinking, like, how are you not sweating? You're wearing all of that, all of those masks.
2: You're wearing two masks. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, now, something that you brought up that I want to uh, mention for reprints, because I've got the hardcover Legends of the Dark Knights uh, Marshall Rogers hardcover edition. On this one, it's on page 39 of the collection as the first page of this issue. Julie Schwartz, as editor, is credited in there. They've actually they've taken the blue box, like rectangular caption that runs along the three panels. They have added like an extra blue thing just to the middle panel to just make that middle panel a little bit longer, that caption, and put Julie Schwartz right in the center there.
1: Oh, okay. So, okay. Yeah,
0: he is credited on the reprints, but yeah.
1: Yeah, on the original, he's not, and then the box is yellow too. So that's oh, interesting. Oh,
0: okay, yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm looking at the reprint, and it, it's a, it's like a light blue box. But I can also see, like, as soon as you said that, I was like, that is added after the fact. You can tell that's not the original shape or color of the of the box. So that they added Julie Schwartz later.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting. That's that's kind of cool. One thing I, I wanted to point out too that was in the previous issue. I love that they're using the Batman logo of the of the era that's that's on the Batman comic right now. But they've got this awesome silhouette coming off it like it's casting a shadow. And within that shadow is the basically legend of Batman, you know, that mm-hmm. the, the, the catches you up. You know, orphan is a child when a gunman murdered his parents, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I love that. I mean, that yeah. to me, that should be, on the, should be on every title page of every Batman comic book. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just awesome. It's just awesome. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I wouldn't even mind, like, I would, like, have a print of that logo with this coming off of it with that exact text. That would be awesome. It's like there's Batman. That's what Batman is, you know. So yeah, I I, I love it. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. It is oh.
0: such a ridiculous image, but I have gotten so used to it that I, I kind of love the look of the Batman costume with an old bald Professor Hugo's face like a head on top of the Batman costume. Like I know they've made a toy of this. Yeah. Um, with just like the Batman body, but on top is this guy with like this bald guy with big glasses and this sort of like like uh like almost like mutton choppy type of like beard that doesn't have a mustache it's just the facial hair that goes around his like chin and everything like that as if like he's it's like the um like the amish. Helmet strap yeah yeah like it, this amish thing.
1: It's, it's an amish beard yeah it's 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 so weird and it's like like you said it's only in two pages of this issue and that I mean that that image will stick because mm-hmm. uh Jerry Conway and and and, and Doug Minch will, will do a lot with Hugo Strange and and they'll they won't be able to resist showing him multiple times in that Batman costume with the mask off and then later in the the Ledge of the Dark Knight storyline uh Prey with uh with uh Minch and uh Paul Galassi uh-huh. they do uh they make a meal well well his who's who entry in the uh uh in the Loose Leaf edition is is you know, strange, like, cavorting around in his his room, like, standing on a couch, crouched down on a couch with the Batman suit on, you know? So it's like, it, that becomes, like, strangest thing that he just likes to, you know, parade around in Batman's costume. It's, It's... <laughs> I guess it's kind of like in that weird thing that they did in the 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 Craven's Last Hunt storyline where Craven's wearing Spider Man's costume type thing, yeah. I guess. It's like, you know, it's just this came first though. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kinda weird though, we don't really see, you know, this storyline, you know, he he usurps both identities, but he doesn't do anything as Batman. You know, right. we don't see we don't see him do you know, he's not, you know, interacting with Commissioner Gordon or or, you know, letting criminals escape or, you know, punishing criminals or, you know, and it might kind of would have been interesting that he got so into it that he like went out as Batman and like killed some criminals or something. And you know, what would that have done for Batman? You know, it would have been almost like it, like you said, an early as bats type uh, situation. But now we, you know, they concentrate on uh, what he does to Bruce Wayne. And I think it's interesting. Magda mentions that strange has learned to mimic both Batman and Bruce Wayne's voices. So up to this point, every actor who has played Batman has made very little difference between the two voices. You know, like Adam West, Batman and Bruce Wayne, the, you know, his Bruce Wayne was a little more casual than his Batman. And he didn't speak with such urgency as Batman did, you know. But as far as like trying to change the voice, like Michael Keaton and Kevin Conroy would be the first people that really made an effort to, and especially Kevin Conroy, right, to, right. To, to to make it so people who knew both wouldn't like get that they're the same guy, you know, which I I think's interesting. You know, Engelhard's a ahead of the curve, but Englehart, uh, Englehart's got some interesting things to say about uh, the Batman 89 movie, which we, we should get into. Uh, I, I read that back issue article that he recently wrote and we won't get into it this time. Cause we got some more Englehart to talk about, but right. before we're done with him, we should definitely get into his thoughts on the 89 Batman movie. <laughs> yeah,
0: when we're, yeah. When we wrap up his story, I think we'll come back to that one. Yeah, yeah. I think it is interesting because you mentioned that he he takes on – he's able to imitate Batman and he takes on the costume, but we don't see him doing with anything. It feels like that idea – isn't fully baked. Like we don't really actually get the the payoff of that. That's something that is seeded and kind of thrown out there, but Englehart never actually develops it and takes it where he could have. And getting back to your Craven's last hunt idea, I think that's something that where Demetrius said, you know what, let's actually push that and find out where that would go. Like what, what would that look like if the villain really tries to take on and, and be the, the superior Batman or the superior Spider-Man? Of course, Dan Slott would actually take that even further. Um, mm-hmm. Getting back to Magna uh on, on page four, when uh Strange is impersonating Bruce Wayne at the office and he calls Magna, she's like toweling her hair. She's like just got out of the bath or the shower or something like that. Like, uh, was that inglehart's idea or was that Rogers? Like,
1: yeah, I, I think Rogers is trying. I mean, because he draws her and you know her. She got the towel around her and he's on this little communication device and you know that they only had in comics back then and and she's got her cleavage all shoved up and then. Silver walks in the door in the very next panel, and she's showing all ton, tons of cleavage. So I don't, I don't know if Rogers was just, uh, you know, he was a young man. He, uh, he <laughs> had a strong libido. But, <laughs> he, but it's just like. like
0: you could draw just uh, the woman's face on this little wrist like communicator or anything. It's like, all right, well, what, that's kind of boring. What if she's just got, what if she just got out of the shower and she's like drying her hair or something like that? Right, okay.
1: <laughs> well, maybe just figuring that somebody always calls when you're in the shower. I don't know. You know, <laughs> yeah. like I guess, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I kind of you know back backtrack in one page when. Um, he later says, you know, when when Magda calls or he calls Magda that Alfred's taking care of Bruce. But it's like we see Alfred getting shoved into the room, and then he finds Bruce there, and it, it's a good moment for Alfred because he's like, you know, swearing to, you know, take care of him. And this is this is before Alfred is the surrogate father figure. I mean, not at least he's not since childhood. This is Alfred that came to Wayne Manor after Dick was there. You know, so. Uh, this, this isn't quite the, the Alfred we get to, well, I guess right now, Alfred's dead, but you know, uh, <laughs> it's like, oh boy. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, this isn't the Alfred we know of post, since post crisis, but it's, it's a nice strong moment for Alfred, but it's like, okay, why does he care to, if he's going to kill him, why does he care to? to revive him does he need him does he need him alive just in case he needs to like you know basically get some information out of him before he kills him or is it just that he's doing the whole comic book villain thing and he's got to kill him in a grand and glorious fashion or something
0: that's a good question and I don't know (laughs) why are you you keeping him alive knowing that's not gonna yeah I don't know
1: yeah yeah Uh, you know when uh, Silver comes into uh, uh, Bruce's office and finds Strange there uh, disguised as as uh as Bruce i I really love how you know they use the the blinds of uh you know the light coming through the blinds there's these like these uh, uh these lines going across when silver's walking out after she slaps fake yeah. bruce you know it's 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 pointing to the way she's going it's a great graphical element but it makes perfect sense within the room because they're they're actually using the architecture of the of the space the the actual environment to, to create like a strong graphic design. It's 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 really smartly done. It's it's really it's really sharp.
0: And I love the uh, the lettering for when she actually slaps him the way it plays off on the wall behind him and then the slam when the door shuts. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of great John Work I don't know if you know, that's one of those cases like when you're doing this type of stuff, is it is it John Workman or is it uh is it her? And I, I almost think it's probably Workman because I know he worked with Walt Simonson, right on Thor, didn't he do the Didn't he do the lettering on Thor? And I mean, that was you know full of like where the lettering was like part of the actual. The sound effects were like part of the art. You know, don't know who did what or it was a collaboration between the two of them. But
0: Uh, again, like going back to what I said, like how um, how Joe Rubinstein mentioned that Marshall Rogers had very specific notes on the coloring and sort of all aspects. It wouldn't surprise me if if Rogers actually had that like details like written on the margins or if he had notes for John Workman too about or 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 uh Terry Austin or something like this is the way the lettering should be should convey that sound effect or something. Uh and if they they adapted that, if they actually did that but it was based on his notes, maybe. Uh I'm I'm speculating. But I that wouldn't surprise me.
1: Yeah, yeah. I that's you're probably right. Yeah, I like it. I and again, we're seeing that Silver is no dummy. I mean right. she she knows something isn't right. And so she's going back to the source and she goes back to gray towers and, and, uh, she's got these big, uh, what are those called clogs? The sandals <laughs> with the big, the wooden wedges, you know, and she, she, she's very stylish and, and fashionable and, and, uh, she looks great. And, and yeah, she goes and, uh, you know, Magda gives her the icy reception. And, uh, so then she, uh, she makes a phone call to Hudson university and, and, uh, you know, when I, when I was, you know, I'm old and, uh, and because like Michael Bailey said, I was born with a comic book in my hand when I come out of the womb. So, uh, <laughs> I fondly remember when Dick Grayson was in <laughs> Hudson university and those Robin backup, well, they weren't backup stories. They were lead stories and like Batman family and detective are, mm-hmm. you know, soon to be detective around this time, but in Batman family and things. So, uh, so yeah, Dick at Hudson university is like, a you know, was a soft spot for me, but, uh. Yeah, so she calls Dick, and I love you know this is just the bottom. We'll get to the bottom of this, page seven, but because right. yeah, in a minute. But the top part where they're just having the conversation, there's this wonderful shot of Silver on the phone with Dick, and it's got all this uh, zipatone or duotone, whatever. Uh, Rob knows that stuff better than I do, but I think a zipatone effect on her face, and uh, it's it, it's 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 just awesome looking. And the the panel borders are tangled phone lines yes Uh, that's uh, you know most people nowadays what the hell is that but you know phones used to have cords on them folks and (laughs) and that's what this is supposed to represent yeah uh it it, it, it's it's great it adds to the there's like these you know these little thin panels not very wide long but not very wide tall but not very wide panels uh in between their conversation and and I love how you know Rogers is selling that you know Dick is listening intently, but he's he's keeping the act up because you know
0: right right, which is heartbreaking for her because she's calling hoping that this guy will actually help her, and he has every intention of helping her, but he can't let her know that he has to like basically make her think that he's blowing her off like he's not because that's how you pass off the lie. So he's got a. He's got to break her heart in order to actually act later on and save Bruce because he knows something is up. And I like that it's conveyed in the last panel of her when she's just all in shadow. When mm-hmm. he just blacks it out because that's then you really, when it's when it's uh Robin you just hear Robin's voice coming she says, "Hey, keep your chin up, you know things may work out yet, but she's all in black and you can tell that she doesn't believe it, she thinks she's all alone and and it's not working out and i I love like kind of you get the the pain and the the sense of betrayal from from the scene in that moment, even though it's it's kind of like it's like, uh, it's like she he he is listening to you he is going to help you out here he just he just has to lie to you so
1: well and you know dick's thinking okay if this this girl is concerned enough with bruce that she's calling me now i'm gonna look like a real ass to her from now on because i wouldn't you know i had to keep the act up and that's why i basically had to act like i didn't care and uh even though he's you know it's and and they've done stories where you know it showed that Dick struggled with the with the act, you know, as, you know especially being a young man he wanted to to just you know let everybody I mean they did that they mentioned that in the untold legend of the batman how it was hard for him to 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 keep up the act, you know, and and not show that he could do all these the things he could do and and uh the kind of character he really was. But I think it's interesting you know uh Rogers is like the only artist in this era who gives Dick his original a variation on his original golden age haircut that he's parted in the middle. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of, cause he doesn't have the Bert, the Bert word hair, you know, haircut with the uh, parted on the side. It's parted in the middle, which is, it's which kind of interesting, but I, I got to say the bottom two panels are some of the best. I mean, this is, this is, this is some great stuff here. And I, and I'm a sucker. I think I'm a sucker for a, a hero who keeps a high powered motorcycle hidden in their van I think that's one reason why I love the Red Brown Captain America movies so much. <laughs> it's because of Robin it's because of the Robin comics from back then, you know uh but yeah, I mean, it's just you know there's the panel of Dick he's getting in the uh, motorcycle and says to an unknown voice on the phone, he can never be anything but a callow college student in the next panel, but ninety seconds later he can be Robin, and it's not like the Robin logo, but it's in like a special font, just like Batman it's just got that
0: Batman wasn't last issue yep.
1: Yeah, and it's this awesome panel of Robin tear assing out of the back of his van yeah. on his boss, Robin Cycle, which I love that Robin Cycle. Oh, God, I wish they'd made a toy of that back in the day, because <laughs> I, I got a Superpowers Lunchbox where he's on it. on it. It's green for some reason instead of red, which is kind of like, oh, no, it's supposed to be red, dude. But uh, but they never made a toy. I mean, they've made toys since then. I've got a corgi of it. But, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, back in the day, I so wanted a Robin Cycle. But, yeah, it was – I just – yeah, that's just awesome. But yeah, I can almost hear the the red brown Captain America theme, you know, go <laughs> as he shoots out of the back of that. <laughs> oh yeah. So, you know, I I almost forgot, you know, we leave Silver in Danger at the end of this issue. There's no resolution to the fact that she's getting picked up by Monster Man.
2: <laughs> oh yeah.
1: It's like, oh, wait a minute, you know, she got attacked by monster men. Where's she at? So we'll have to wait till next issue to find out what happens to Silver. So <laughs> good
0: point. I forgot about that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so so Strange has set up this this auction, uh, you know, through the underworld grapevine and it's there's some nice panels of them like, you know, now how the monster men got into his limo, I have no idea. That's what <laughs> I want to know. You know, it's like did they lay him down in the back? I I don't know. But somehow they got across town and uh you know um it, we've got this it it goes into very specifics, how you know there's bulletproof glass and and it, it, there he sets it up to where he can't see who's in the audience and they can't see each other, so nobody knows who's bidding on what or who's there bidding I mean they know what they're bidding on, but they don't know who's there, each other d- don't but if you're paying attention, one is smoking a cigarette in a holder and has an umbrella and the other is wearing purple pinstripe stirrup pants and purple gloves so you know if you
0: <laughs> again seeding future issues
1: exactly we'll exactly
0: see. we'll we'll see these things coming up later in the annual heart run yeah
1: right exactly and and uh if you if i think even the most casual batman fan could pick up on who these uh, two of these people were uh yeah if you've ever watched any batman media then you probably know who these two guys are uh yeah so i think it's funny too that strange when he leaves he says he sprayed them with a chemical so he can verify their admittance the following night so it's like You know, he is very, very thorough, which is it it just goes to show he thinks he's got everything, Mm -hmm. you know, contingency plan. But he is such he is such he is so stuck on the basically the honor among thieves, basically, that that, you know, was like, well, I'm superior to you, so you're not going to try to do anything untoward and, and try to you know take advantage of me but he walks outside and and thorns goons like shoot his men you know yeah. they, they say they say with tranquilizers though which i think's maybe the comic code was still a little too strict to show him just mowing down even giants at this point oh, although right, batman right. did it in 1940 but you know uh, <laughs> but i i thought that was kind of interesting that uh you know you can show a guy getting beat to death later but you can't show monster man getting mowed down so right, right. yeah
0: <laughs> well, like that thorn is just like mm, no we're not gonna play this game you've got information i want we'll we'll take it you <laughs> just right you don't have leverage over me it's actually the other way around so let's just i'll kill all of your fr- all of your hirelings and take you
1: Right, and it's you know, it's I get the feeling you know, with with Thorny's probably like, I run this city. You've been gone for a long time in Europe. You don't understand how things work here, so sorry, dude. I'm not letting some, you know, dude come back into town and you know steal steal my thunder. Sorry.
0: <laughs> and then we get Robin in action.
1: Yeah. Uh, these are some of the best pages that robin's ever had up to this point in comics i mean because like we said he he looks like a boss when he's like his silhouette when he comes to the window and and all you see is the r on his chest and and the yellow of his cape and when he's behind the bars and it kind of reminds me of the scene in uh, the first Rachel ghoul story when robin's climbing into his dorm window yeah. and then gets zapped yeah, <laughs> yeah it kind of it kind of reminds me of that but uh yeah he, he's come to the window and and he's completely confident. He says, uh, "Asked how Bruce and him are doing, Alfred are doing, and Bruce is still completely knocked out." Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, "Good, just hang tight." And then you turn the page, and after an, an ad for Star Hunters and put a super friend on your chest with Joe Kubert art, a Heroes World ad, uh, <laughs> then you get, which is actually pretty cool. Then you get uh, Robin, just like he's literally just launching into the room, like he's like, "Gangway, boys, the Robin's on the wing," and he just starts beating the crap out of those guys. Yeah,
0: like, yeah, launching his right, like he looks like he's flying in the two panels. He's just like off his feet, just ramming right into them, knocking them out. And I mean, this is, uh, clearly he is, he is trained well under Batman because he is taking out a whole handful of these monster men that are probably three times his size and weight and he disarms Magda, Um, and you see the struggle by the last panel. I, I noticed, like, I, I don't know if this was supposed to be a detail that he hasn't worn this costume in a while, and it, it's kind of like he's grown out of it. But as he's struggling, the strap on his his uh, tunic actually rips. Uh, yeah, and we see that later on too. Like after it's it's settled when he's when he's coming into the room to save uh, Alfred and Bruce, um, like his his tunic is half like torn open and everything. It's like, uh, <laughs> you might have to have that that thing resized. Or <laughs> change your costume, I guess.
1: I think that I definitely think they were playing into the fact that there was a lot of you know rumblings of change. Robin's costume, you know, I mean there was there was the deal with uh, you know the the Earth Two Robin when he was still wearing that mishmash Batman costume of his gave Dick what la- he would later wear in that Justice League story, exactly. and he wore it in that Earth One Dick wore it in that story, and then later Earth Two Dick adopted that look. And then there were all those, you know, like we said uh, before, there were those fan pages that were published in Detective and Batman Family that showed alternate designs for Robin. And around this time, there's a story drawn by Don Newton and uh, written by Bob Rosakis that uh, that shows Robin wears uh, costumes that fans had. Basically, they use the uh, like Hudson University has this thing where they have uh, Robin fans submit costumes uh, that he wears throughout the story. And they were actually, you know, comic fan submitted costumes. So there was definitely this idea that, hey guys, you need to change Robin's costume. He's he's an adult. He's 18, 19 years old. He shouldn't be wearing short pants and pixie boots anymore. And they DC wouldn't do it. It's like, oh well, licensing. You know, uh, we can't. You know, and 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 it took them until Tim Drake got his actual costume till they finally did it. You know, I mean, yes, they made Dick Nightwing, but Robin remained Robin in, in this costume. So yeah, de- I think Rogers and Austin are having some fun with, with and, and, and I don't know if Englehart indicated it or it was just them, but it's like, yeah, get this grown man out of this costume basically. <laughs> yep. yeah. But he looks great. And I mean, they, they much like uh, George Perez later and, and guys like Don Newton and, and, and Jim Apparo and, and artists like that, they make it look good on the older Robin. I mean, it looks; it, it's a good. I mean, it it doesn't it doesn't look silly. I mean, they make it to me. They make it work. And and him having the shirt unbuttoned down is, and it's kind of weird. It's kind of in a way. It's uh, where it's ripped. It kind of it kind of uh, uh, points to the Nightwing, the original Nightwing look, yeah. <laughs> where, yeah. where he was showing man cleavage, you know. Uh, so. <laughs> So Magda heads upstairs, and, and she's going to, uh, you know, take care of Bruce. that has got a contingency plan. Uh, Strange does. And, 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 uh, but Alfred's going to stop her. And this is, this is an MI6 Alfred that's got all this, you know, training. I don't know if they'd added the military background yet. It's in Untold Legend. But, it, you know, Englehart describes him as frail. But he's still struggling with her, and he's not going to let her hurt Bruce. And uh, so she gets injected with the, uh, the Monster Man formula. I, you know, it's kind of weird to think that they were going to inject Bruce with that instead of just, like, some poison to kill him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but yeah, it turns her into a monster. She gets hairy arms. And I think it looks like she, you know, because he draws, like, hairy shoulders. When Robin kicks her in the head, she looks like she's nude. It looks like she's, like, ripped out of her clothes. Yeah, yeah. And I And I kind of wonder if they didn't edit out, like, maybe some clothes getting ripped off of her in the bottom panel of 14 because – there's some parts in there that look kind of bare for basically Rogers and Austin. And they kinda of color like they color her hips on the in the last panel when she's fallen to the floor with a whoop. They color it yellow in, in the version I got because she'd be showing a lot of bare skin otherwise and but I think they drew her to be like she ripped out of her clothes when she changed because honestly she would, you know, right. <laughs> because she's as tall as she's gotten. So I yeah, think that's, they,
0: that's the impression I get too, yeah.
1: Yeah. And yeah.
0: it's it's interesting that, I mean, it's one of those things, I mean, they set it up from the last issue, you know, Don, you know Hugo Strange has discovered Batman's identity. What's going to happen? I mean, once, you know, the villain learns the identity, is the villain going to die by the end of the next issue, or are they going to come up with some other... You know, explanation for why he can't reveal the secret to the public or something. You know, that's kind of that's a, that's a trope that's kind of standard. But more than just pe- more than one person knows the secret. Like you kind of like forget until you're reading this. It's like wait a minute, Magna knows the truth about Bruce Wayne and Batman too. What's to stop her from saying? It? They had to come up with a way of making sure that she doesn't spill. So okay, she becomes a monster. Now she can't talk. <laughs> it's
1: like- Right, yeah. Does she remain a monster from now on? I mean, did this, did this? I mean, did she die? Was this a, a lethal version of the monster um, uh, serum, or you know, cause we never, as far as I know, even when Jerry Conway, when he comes on to the Batman titles, he revisits a lot of the Englehart run, mm-hmm. and I mean, pretty mu- well, pretty much every aspect of the Englehart run, and I'm sure you know that was a decision with, uh, was it Dick Giordano was the editor at that time? I think maybe. Uh, but you know uh, they they consciously tried to kind of revive this without any of the creative team basically, but and they did a great job. I mean, that's when I mean I was that's when I really first started buying, making sure I got Batman a Detective every single month, or you know it, I tried to anyway. I mean I, I was old enough then to get it myself basically by by myself by that point. Uh, but uh, they did a great job with it. But I don't think Magda ever resurfaces, as far as I know. Right. So this is her last appearance. So. I do think it's uh, I think it's interesting, Robin. You know, there's that panel, There's an awesome panel of Robin Sander with his, fit, his fist clenched and he's got, like you said, his shirt's like popped open and and uh, but he's talking about, you know, he can't believe that strange use snakes. It's almost like an Indiana Jones like reaction to snakes here. You know, it's like I hate snakes because <laughs> he's just. It's just several years ahead. He's like. Snakes! That lunatic is gonna pay. You know, it's just, uh, it's just he's he's really all the stuff Robin's seen in his lifetime, and he's really put out by use of snakes. You know, that's that's just too far. You know, it's like you know alien, you know uh, invasions and and uh, all sorts of you know psycho clowns and you know men that can uh, mud men that can change shape and you know flying Batman and all this stuff, but he can't abide snakes. You know. So, <laughs> <laughs> i just think that's funny and then the the sequences the sequence on the last few pages where they're where they're beating strange i mean it's you know it, it's really well done there's these you know these silent panels of 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 just uh thorn just smoking his cigar as you hear thump whoop, crack you know clump and it's just these sound effects and it'll cut back to strange and they've dragged him back in again and he's He's missing a tooth and uh he's got bruises and they they can't go too gory it's still a code approved comic in nineteen seventy seven but you get the idea that they're really just just pummeling this guy and it's yeah. really it's really really well done and strange is just I mean he is a charter member of the Batman fan club I mean he is not he's not gonna give 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 it up no matter what and uh yeah I mean he and apparently he dies and takes that uh, secret to his grave. now we know he comes back, but, but for all intents and purposes, right here he's dead mm-hmm. and and he took the secret with him and thorn just can't thorn can't understand it you know, because thorn's just wanting batman he 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 Batman's just a nuisance that now he's got to get out of his way, so he doesn't he doesn't have these grand illusions of this great battle of wits between the two of them. He just wants him gone, so yeah. he just didn't get it.
0: It was interesting uh, again it's it's kind of funny that. It didn't end the way you expect. You expect Batman and Hugo Strange to face off again, and Batman to somehow stop him and, and reclaim his identity as the one true Batman, and and to figure out a way of silencing Hugo Strange so that the, his secret doesn't come up. But it doesn't get that. You don't get that resolution. It was Strange's hubris, the fact that he thought he could be better than Batman, that put him in the crosshairs of the other people who want to kill Batman and and like again his own arrogance and everything he's like no I'm not going to give you the you the satisfaction of telling you who Batman is so that you can kill him it's like that was my secret I learned that information my way so like, you don't deserve it
1: so right you didn't earn it, yeah. Right. You didn't do it the hard way like me. I, you know, you got to now. You can pay me over a million dollars and I'll sell it to you, but I'm not just gonna. <laughs> I'm just not gonna give it to you. You Either got to earn it or you got to pay for it. You know, basically.
0: <laughs> Hugo Strange has a sense of his own self worth that may be quite inflated, but I don't know. I mean, he did get over on Batman in this, so.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Like you said, you know, Batman doesn't. Batman doesn't get to. The, to get his uh you know his triumphant revenge against him for what he did to him or anything you know so yeah I, I do think it's funny too it's uh you know the next issue blurb says next in detective number 473 on sale august 25th the real batman returns and so does the penguin you did spot him on page 10 panel 5 didn't you um <laughs> so batman returns with the penguin so that's kind of interesting
0: <laughs> where, where have i heard that before <laughs> oh, 1992,
1: yeah. Well, uh it's going to bite the nose off somebody. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, this is uh this is this is a fantastic issue and I, and I think, you know, what a perfect issue. You know, there's the Robin 80th anniversary issue came out in comic stores this week folks i don't know if you were able to get to your comic store and i don't know if you even should go to your comic store right now but i went ahead and here's something if you guys got a comic pool at your comic store you don't think you're going to be able to get there for a while call them up and pay for what's in your file you know help them out because these guys are going to be struggling until all this is over and that's what i did and i you know because i you know i get up there even though i work i work in the town where my comic shop is but i don't get to you know i'm at work so i don't get to go over there all that often but so I go in about once a month and pick up my file. You know, if it's going to be a while before you get to go back in, you know, you might want to think about support your local comic shop and and uh, maybe pay for what's in your pool file. And, and if they've got an online store, maybe get some stuff from them and, you know, just, just help support, you know, local business and things like that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. My uh, last week, my, uh, my old hometown store in, uh, in Illinois was having a buy to get one free sale on their uh, trades and graphic novels oh wow um, and I actually I talked to him and I basically I placed an order ended up getting like six books or something and, and I had somebody else that I know like went over picked them up and they like just had them like all set aside and everything like minimal contact so it was really easy but they picked them up and then they shipped those books to me so that's yeah, great good to help them out yeah
1: Yeah, but this is uh, you know like I said it's Robin the Robin 80th anniversary celebration has been going on they released that comic I really want that 70s cover it looks so awesome uh, but but uh uh, this is a great issue to talk about with uh, you know Robin's uh, 80th anniversary on everybody's mind, and uh, because this is a great great showcase for Robin uh, and probably the best he ever came across in a Batman book up to this point, honestly, great stuff.
0: All right, let's take another promo break, and then we will be back with your listener feedback from the last episode. Don't go away.
3: Hi everybody, my name's Hub, and I host a show called Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. Every week, we read either a Defenders comic book from the 70s or a New Teen Titans comic from the 80s. I give a synopsis of that comic that I have handcrafted to amuse and inform, and then my good-for-many-things brother Corey comes over and we talk about what we found interesting about the comic we just read. It's a lot of fun, and we hope you'll join us for it. Anything you'd like to add, Corey? I like cocaine from an animal's butthole. Mm. It is. So good. It is. Paradise. Well, Corey, I don't really think that's appropriate. We're trying to do a promotion for our podcast here. Shut up. Okay, fair enough. Any final thoughts? Of course. Well, let's hear them. I have eaten all the beaver (laughs) buttons. You have eaten none. (laughs) And beaver's butt is pretty good. There you have it tighten up the defense. That's T-I-T-A-N. You can find it wherever podcasts are found. It's probably worth mentioning. I'm the one who does the editing. Catch the wave of the future and hang 10 on it with us, Cowabunga.
0: Last episode, we covered Detective Comics 469 and 470, and we got a ton of great comments on the website FireAndWaterPodcast.com. GoldDragon71 said Detective Comics 1000 had a side story where Bruce melts down the gun and put it behind the yellow oval. That might be what Chris was thinking about. This was about our... um we were talking about the the little teaser image for the Batman, the new movie, and what looked like, or, or the rumor was that maybe his bat symbol was actually made from the gun that killed his parents. So,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's I think he's right. I have that comic, but I just don't remember that. But I, you know, I read most of the stories in that, and I think I read that one, but. Uh, modern comics just don't uh, stick in my brain like the classics do. I hate to say, so I, I forgot I even was even in that issue. So, uh, <laughs> pardon me. So, <laughs> but thanks for letting us know that that because that was definitely floating around. My son showed me that mm. uh, panel, and I'm like, oh, okay, and I I didn't know where it had come from, but there you go. So, thank you. Uh, Michael Bailey from the Overlooked Dark Night and Bailey's Batman podcast said, "A great start to the all new, all different nightcast, starting with these stories." Is the right way to go when covering the Englehart-Rogers run, even though Rogers wasn't really involved. I had the Strange Apparitions trade and the Shadow of the Bat Prince, which I did find in the wild as a set and grab because of the covers. This is one of those classic errors, and I think you guys are doing right by it. The subject of Englehart having something to do with the Batman 89 film came up and reminded me of a comics interview special. I had this full of Batman related articles. Englehart was interviewed and was very salty about the fact he didn't get paid for his treatment as much as most people are paid for movie treatments. I guess he was far enough away from DC at that point that he felt he could spill the tea. Uh, well, like I said, uh, we'll get to that, what he recently wrote in Back Issue. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> He's spilling. It's like a Boston Tea Party almost, <laughs> uh, basically, at this point, yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: Net administrator said, Pre-Crisis DC is the best. This tale is in some ways a retelling of the Golden Age tale of Professor Radium from Batman number 8. Uh, and then Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, "Net administrator is so right about the similarities with Batman Number Eight, especially the way Doctor Phosphorus is removed. Compare and contrast, chaps. Uh, I've ne- I don't think I've ever read Batman Number Eight. I don't know. I don't know that story of Doctor Radium or Professor Radium.
1: Yeah, I do, and I uh, uh, for some reason I never made a connection. So good on you guys. I I just." Uh Doctor Radium was one of those guys that uh, you know. There was Doctor Death that later comes back in the the Jerry Conway run, and yes. Yes. that's one that Engelhart didn't get around to. And Jerry Conway's like, "Aha! Here's one you didn't do," yeah. uh, basically, <laughs> which is great. And that's that's where Gene Colin actually comes in oh, yeah. in that storyline. Yeah. Uh, it's it's really really awesome. Uh, so you could just cover that on one of two shows if you wanted to, actually. <laughs> uh, but but uh, yeah, Doctor Radium, I didn't think about. It. So great great call on that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Martin continued. I did buy these issues off the spinner rack. Who could resist that first cover? And Doctor Foxorus looked just as good inside. The heaviness of the finishes certainly screams Milgram to me, but I love the result. The script is a tad heavy-handed. Engelhart's narration is especially painful, amigo. And even then, Barus making speeches to himself seemed weird. But yeah, it's the start of a classic run. So respect. I always liked that logo, except for the word Batmans. The possessive nature didn't sit well with me. If people are really so stupid they have to be told the spooky guy on the cover is on the book, just give us a proper Batman logo. I don't know. I think I disagree. I like the way it says Batman's Detective Comics. I actually I, I, I think I like that inclusion. You could take it out, or you could just make it Batman, or, or something like that. I like that effect of the, the possessive Batman's Detective Comics. I think it's kind of cool
1: yeah i do too i'm just glad when they when they there was a version before this and actually it's on one of my favorite issues where can't think of the number but it's it's uh elliot s Magan and and mike grill where batman fights a vampire gustav de cobra which is one of my (laughs) we did it on house of franklinstein it's one of my favorite batman like little uh, uh you know gems that most people don't talk about but they used the Batman logo of the time and then add an apostrophe S floating outside the end of it. That looked horrible. Uh And it was, and it was like the old detective. It's like Batman's detective comics. It was like, Oh God, that was just that as a graphic designer, that just offends me. But, (laughs) Highly write, wrote in to say, love the show. I've stuck by you and listened to every episode, regardless how badly you tore apart my fond memories of the early post-crisis bat titles. Well, I guess not that fond. After all these years, I had vaguely remembered the disappointment of those early years, but I didn't realize, realize until your podcast just how bad they were. Regardless, just when you're getting to the better stuff, you've decided to change formats? Oh, well. You got me because you wisely chose to dive into the Inglehart, Simonson, Rogers, Austin, etc. run. I just couldn't stay mad and go away. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm glad you didn't go away, and I'm also, you know, we're sorry we kind of ruined your ruined your uh, childhood there. Uh, a couple of things to mention in case you haven't found out already: Silver St. Cloud did show up in *The Legend of the Dark Knight* in a six-issue run by Archie Goodwin and Marshall Rogers. Yes, I knew that. I couldn't remember if Silver was in that storyline or not. I know knew it was kind of a pseudo sequel to the Englehart Rogers run with Goodwin before engelhardt himself finally came back and they did the dark detective but uh i remember liking the art but and you no know, I, I like archie goodwin otherwise but I, I don't remember being all that crazy about that story um,
0: I've, I've read the story and i don't really even remember it so it didn't make much of an impression
1: yeah i, I just remember there was some guy that had like a gold plate like thing on his head that's the only thing i really remember about it I, it's it's really strange uh, number two, according to an interview with Sam Hamm, the screenwriter of Batman '89, when he got the earlier drafts of the screenplays, he was wondering who this Silver St. Cloud was because he remembered Vicky Vale from the comics he read as a kid and changed it. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Yeah, I believe that's true because Steve Englehart actually wrote a treatment that definitely had Vicky Vale, and I mean, definitely had Silver and uh, not Vicky, Vicky, Vicky Vale. Vicky Vale. And uh, <laughs> drop in. Vicky Vale. <laughs> drop in. Uh, so uh we'll uh you know we'll we'll get again, we'll get to uh what Inglehart thought of all that uh when we get toward the end of his run, but yeah, uh, highly continues anyway, can't wait for the next episode, hang in there and take care, highly impressed, that's clever, I like that I
0: like that <laughs> that's a nice sign off, yeah, yeah, Edo Bosnar said, I think Simonson's art was overpowered by Milgram's inks to the point that it seems like he may have just done layouts. This may have been an earlier phase in Simonson's career, but I don't think we can really talk about him being in a phase where he was still finding his legs as an artist. You just need to look at his work on the Manhunter stories from 73 and 74, which you mentioned, or the Dr. Fate story in first issue special number 9, which is 1975, or Metal Men issues 45 through 49 in 76, to see that he'd pretty much hit the ground running as a fully formed artist with his own distinctive style. By the way, Ryan makes a good point about Silver St. Cloud and the fact that she hasn't really appeared much in the comics, but is still considered one of Batman's major love interests. It's a testament to the storytelling craftsmanship demonstrated by Englehart and Rogers in this run. For me, there's a trio of love interests I find acceptable for Batman. In first place is Selina slash Catwoman, while Talia is a more distant third, mainly because of some inherent trustworthiness problems. In a close second to Selina, though, is Silver, based solely on the strength of her appearances in this run. I actually found her appearance in Dark Detective a bit disappointing, like that series as a whole, but that's discussion for another time, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I don't really argue with that selection of of, of Batman uh you know top three that's that's uh that sounds good to me so
0: (laughs) i I mean the the whole uh rachel caspian thing i mean how can we forget the the nun who you almost got to leave her her own faith and
1: yeah (sighs) Ah, when you're talking about rachel there's there's that rachel and there's rachel Rachel. yeah Yeah, so you know so that yeah uh the two the two faces of rachel uh you know from those, (laughs) those movies Uh, Gothos Mansion wrote in to say, according to Steve Englehart, Simonson was supposed to draw his entire run but backed out. I don't know if it was because Milgram's inks overpowered his pencils or what. Englehart said he wrote 469-470 through Marvel style with a basic plot letting Simonson work out the pace, and then Englehart did the dialogue. After Simonson's departure, Englehart had to switch to DC style and do full script, so he was planning to leave comics and the U.S., he didn't know that Rogers and Austin would do the art. Apparently Rogers liked the full script method because he was unhappy with Len Wein writing Marvel style. As for the issue, I thought it was great when I was five and still do. The scene that really burned itself into my memory was the bit where Phosphorus used the laser light show to project his image at the concert. That was awesome. Since I discovered Batman via the TV show, I didn't realize Chief O'Hara's appearance wasn't a common occurrence in comics. I love the reintroduced Batcave as well. Notice the name of the alley that Batman uses to exit the Batcave. I didn't appreciate that as a kid, but I love it now. Yes, he's talking about Finger Alley. Uh, The issue has a lot of action and is very colorful for a young reader and has a lot more for mature readers. It is just a success at all levels. Yeah, I agree. It is. And, you know, while we're talking about that, and this might be a good time to point out – in this comic comic book implosion book um, that uh, I was talking about earlier by Keith Dallas and, and John Wells. Again, this has been out for a while, but I just got it, guys. So if you read it already, I apologize. But, <laughs>
0: but uh, mean, like since you've been mentioning the explosion and the implosion, I, I keep on like having this image in my head of basically like two light switches, one explosion, one implosion, and they just flip the wrong one or something like
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Well, it's got a little introduction here about it. It says uh, Keith Dallas and and John Wells say, The most talked about a book at D.C. in 1977 was the company's namesake titled Detective Comics. As he requested when Jeanette Kahn hired him, Steve Englehart was writing Batman and envisioned a run of stories that acknowledged the sum of the Dark Knight's career from his Creature of the Night beginnings and his partnership with Robin to his most famous enemies and often maligned science fiction phase. One of the through lines in these eight issues was the love affair of Bruce Wayne and the new girlfriend, Silver St. Cloud, a far more intimate, intelligent romance than fans were accustomed to seeing in comic books. Editor Julia Schwartz assigned Walt Simonson and Al Milgram to draw the opening installments in Detective 469 and 470. And then it's got a quote from Steve Englehart uh, from the Comics Journal number 54 in March 1980. And Steve Englehart says, The first two issues just didn't gel. Walt only could do the quickest of layouts, and Al's diligent inks couldn't pick up the slack. I knew by then just how hot my vision of Batman was going to be. I could see it all in my mind's eye, but I had such visions before only to have the final printed page look like it had been drawn with Professor X's foot. By 1976, people would read, yeah, that's pretty rough. People would read my stuff no matter who drew it, but comics is a hybrid medium, and if one half of the effect is botched, the lasting impression is botched, and there's no way around it. And it says another insert from the authors of the book. By that point, Julius Schwartz had absorbed the reaction to Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin's Batman Calculator story in issue four sixty eight and asked Englehard if he'd be willing to settle for these new guys for the duration of the story in Detective four seventy one through four seventy six. The writer was delighted and readers cheered their agreement throughout nineteen seventy seven as the adventure built to a high stakes finish in December. And uh yeah, so that's uh that just shows you that, uh, yeah, Steve Englehart, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of rough. He had some kind of, you know, I mean, he's not really a like, trash in Walt Simonson, but he's not like really pulling any punches either. So,
0: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, some of that shade could have been leveled at Milgram because he does kind of mention that that, uh, that Simonson really wasn't able to finish it or, or he only drives right. some layouts and the rest was left to Milgram. So maybe he was saying that the end result was more Milgram's fault than Simonson's. Either way, I mean, we did not have that much. Pro- we did not have those same problems with the with the art with the story. I mean, I I mean this Rogers looks so much better, and I don't think those issues were the best of Simonson's career by any stretch. I don't think anybody would say that. He wouldn't say that. Um, but I th- I mean the art was fine. I I, I don't think I don't think uh, Engelhart had any right to be that bummed out by the the nature of it, and. I also don't remember if I heard this from you or where I first heard that, but I have heard the the other story that Inglehart was basically wrote most of this run all kind of in a rush and then like left, like like took off, like left the country and he wasn't did, even yeah. doing anything. So he actually had no idea how big this run became and how successful and how beloved it was at the time. Like like he could have stuck around and maybe like did more work, except he had basically just given up. Like he was so frustrated that he just walked away from comics for a time and like it was just completely caught off guard by how successful and how big this became
1: yeah yeah yeah. i mean here it seems like he he kind of felt like it was going to be that big but i don't think he realized how you know important it would be in the grand scheme of of batman's You know, stories, you know, how how lauded it would become. But uh, yeah, he basically my understanding was uh, he had a a big, nasty falling out at Marvel and he came to D.C. This was right around the time Jeanette Kahn took over at D.C. and, And, you know, she she was basically trying to lure top talent back to D.C. A lot of them were at Marvel at the time and. And uh, he was basically like, "Yeah, I'll do some stuff for you, but I'm I'm done with comics. I'm gonna write Justice League and Batman for like a year. I'm gonna do a year's worth of scripts and give them to you, and then I'm out." Mm-hmm. And that's basically what he did. So, uh, and he was like off in Europe trying to write a novel or something for. You know, and he he eventually does come back. He actually writes an issue of Batman that has Dr. Phosphorus in it, like toward like seventy nine, eighty, I think. And that's that's the first time I met Dr. Phosphorus. It's got a, a JLGL cover and it's guest stars Batgirl. Uh, I can't remember the the issue number off the top of my head, but uh it's uh that's the first time I I ran into Doctor Phosphorus. But uh yeah, he, yeah, he's he if only it stuck around, you know. <laughs> it's right. just, uh, right. This run could have lasted longer, yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, Matt Soroa said Gotham City must have some of the most diligent process servers in the country unless I missed something that guy was ready with illegal papers right outside where Batman just happened to be nabbing a safecracker did he put the safecracker up to the heist to lure Batman in? I love that <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Batman's That's... just doing his patrol just catches this guy like in some blind alley and there just happens to be a guy serving him a subpoena there
1: <laughs> it's like... well, well he said he was like Slugworth and you know Slugworth <laughs> yeah. just kept showing up He just kept showing up in alleyways and when the kids were on TV and, you know, while the kids were being interviewed on TV, he'd pull them them away and, like, whisper in their ear. So, I mean, he's got Slugworth powers, so, yeah. (laughs) Slugworth powers. Yeah. sounds like a villain. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Uh, Rob Kelly said, now we know that guy, I always liked Dr. Phosphorus. Great look, cool powers. Always thought he should be bigger in the Rose Gallery than he is. Nice to hear you guys not sound like you went to kill yourselves on an episode of Nightcast. (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that's that's true yeah dr phosphorus definitely had a really cool visual and i think that's one reason why the batman the 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 tim burst guys bruce tim and company actually took that visual and ran with it as with blight on batman beyond it was just too cool of a visual yeah
0: uh, Lizanne Oswalt left us a comment pointing out three points in the story that she thought were mistakes where Batman should have gotten radiation poisoning from his fight with Dr. Phosphorus. Well, now having read the follow-up, we know that Inglehart actually he made steps to address those points of the radiation poisoning. I don't think it was completely resolved the way it needed to be, but at least it wasn't completely ignored either. Uh, and then Lizanne plugged her YouTube channel and, for some reason, three other people's channels. I don't know why.
1: Okay. Siskoid uh, from our own Fire & Water Network said, Batman's villains fall into three main categories, though they're a little fluid. madmen Men, who also tend to be gimmick thieves, crime lords, and monsters. Like Man Bat and Killer Croc, Dr. Phosphorus falls into the latter category. He's too cool to have been used so little. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of you know, a lot of love for Dr. Phosphorus here. It's like we haven't even got a proper action figure of him with his, you know, mm-hmm. ragged jean shorts. Come on, people.
0: <laughs> it's it's just a great classic kind of visual look. It's something it's very deceptively simple. Um, But it's it's kind of like perfect. But it's also – it's not necessarily specific to Batman and Batman's world. He he could right. be a utility villain that is used by any superhero really. So.
1: Right, right. And of course we'll, somebody will bring up later that he was – and I can't believe I didn't bring this up – that he was later used to great effect in Starman and very important in the overall storyline of that. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, Tim Price said, yikes, Dr. Phosphorus killed everyone in that stadium and rich folks having a party on a yacht the next day? No fundraisers for the victims? No memorials? No calls for action by their families? Dang, I called BS on Batman's rosy vision of Gotham. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. Uh, I haven't read many issues from this era of Batman, so thank you for giving me a reason to try some. A great couple of issues to start with, that's for sure. Thank you, all new, all different nightcasters. (laughs) (laughs)
1: we're not we're not that different I guess I guess we're (laughs) we got a different attitude I guess yeah (laughs) Uh, Noah Ternell said man am I glad you covered these issues I've had a fascination with Dr. Phosphorus ever since I first encountered him in issue number six of the original Who's Who series in fact these two comics were among the first two back issues I ever purchased from the Heroes World in my local mall. Oh, we just brought up Heroes World. It was an ad in here, so that's great. I remember, I remember Dofo.
0: Dofo, I love that.
1: Dofo. <laughs> Dofo is one bad mofo. That's what I was saying. I remember Dofo just freaking me out, especially that rock concert scene. Although, yes, I always wonder why nobody seemed to care about thousands of teenagers dying a gruesome death. Uh, yes, he should have been a more prominent villain, but he's. Had his moments in the sun, he even had a brief spotlight in The Crisis where he nearly burns the Golden Age Hawkman to death during the awesome villain war. Yeah, I forgot about that. Although that scene always made me wonder, if he can practically kill someone just by touching them, why isn't his death count much higher during a melee battle like this? I mean, shouldn't he just be running around grabbing every superhero he can? And of course, James Robinson used him very nicely in Starman. In fact, it was his appearance that got me interested in that series— which has since become one of my all-time favorites. Oh, Dr. Phosphorus so much. Yeah, I, again, I can't believe I forgot to mention the Starman connection, although he's a changed Dr. Phosphorus by that point because he's made a deal with Neuron. Uh He looks he's different, and I honestly think his original visuals better. I mean, nothing against Tony Harris, who I love, but I, I actually like the, the original Dr. Phosphorus. And, of course, Grant Brayfogle will come up with a very similar character with a corrosive man. That
0: comes up in the next comment, yeah. Oh, okay, okay, sorry. I forgot to mention this last time, too, that Dr. Phosphorus came back in one of the Paul Dini issues of Detective Comics that came out in the 2000s, like around the time that Grant Morrison was writing Batman. Paul Dini had a short little run, like uh, eventually led to like the, the hush sequel, but he had just a series of one shots. That was when he had the, the famous Joker story, the the sleigh ride one. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of those stories, he had Dr. Phosphorus, and I forgot.
1: I forgot he was in that, too, until yeah. you said that. That was a good run, and I yeah. forgot. I just forgot. Yeah.
0: Jimmy McGlinchey said they had a callback to this in Detective Comics 825 with the return of Dr. Foster – oh, that's the story I was just thinking of uh, – <laughs> who went after those that fooled him into investing in the tax scheme, including Dr. Bell and an incarcerated Rupert Thorne. It was an okay one-and-done issue, not much to it. Uh, yeah, I don't remember. I know it was a Paul Dini one, so there might be more to it. Uh, it would be interesting if you cover the story that had an analog of Dr. Phosphorus, namely the Night People story from Detective Comics 587 to 589 by Wagner, Grant, and Bray Fogel that introduced the Corrosive Man. Fun storyline, although Batman never pondered on the similarities between Corrosive Man and Dr. Phosphorus. We might do that. I mean, we, we have taken a break from that post-crisis era to do some Marshall Rogers stuff, and I want to do some Neil Adams stuff, but I also want to go back and cover more Grant uh, Grant and Bray stories, too. So we we probably will get to those eventually at some point.
1: Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, the yeah. corrosive man and, and, and the cadaver and all that. Yeah, that's that's good stuff, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Ward Hill Terry wrote in to say, I am very pleased you switched formats as you had been heading towards Batman stories I haven't and won't read. However, this story is one of my absolute all-time favorites. Detective number 469 was the first issue of Detective that I bought. Coincidentally, that same month, I also bought my first issues of Batman and Brave and the Bold. I was initially put off by the art. As a letter writer stated in a letters page with comments on this issue, Milgram's inks do not enhance Simonson's pencils, but the story was easy to follow and exciting to read. One of the things I admire about Englehart's writing from this era was his respect for previous stories. He was able to knit together elements from older stories in Captain America and the Avengers to tell some really good tales. 50s Cap, Origin of the Vision, etc. He does something similar with Batman here. He wants to include a scene at Wayne Manor and a scene in the Batcave. Two story elements that were no longer being actively used, but central to the bulk of the characters' stories. Engelhardt doesn't suddenly upend the previous seven years worth of comics or cavalierly dismiss other writer stories. He constructs a very clever way to get those scenes in. Bruce Wayne can honor the memory of his father without having to fetishize him. A modern penthouse, including your own reference to Deluxe Apartment in the Sky here.
2: (laughs) Moving on up. Deluxe Apartment in the Sky. Moving on up. Moving
1: on up. Uh, Would have modern, stylish furnishings. Where to put some of the favorite, probably antique pieces from Wayne Manor. Build a separate room for them in a sub-basement. How can we have a cave in a great metropolis? A man-made subway tunnel abandoned for 30 years. Brilliant. Here the homages start. Over the course of the whole story arc, Englehart and his artists salute the writers and artists who came before them. There are specific call-outs, Finger Alley and Sprang Arena in this issue, as well as more subtle ones, like the scene in Bruce's study, a callback to his first origin story. Another great touch in this two-parter is the careful laying out of events that will have consequences. For those who have not read this, yes, getting radiation burns will lead Bruce Wayne to seek medical to seek outside medical care trouble. Meeting an intel- intelligent, beautiful woman on his yacht will lead to more than one date, more trouble. Running afoul of the city council will hamper Batman's effectiveness, big trouble. And all those troubles leads up to a great finish. I am fortunate to still have my original grab from the newsstand, actually actual variety store copies, as well as the higher quality Shadow of the Bat reprint. So I compared the original Jerry Serpe coloring to the Marshall Rogers coloring. There are quite a few differences. The big one is that Serpy did not color Dr. Phosphorus. Yes, he colored the flames on the outside, but within the body outline, it was just black bones against a white background. Rogers ga- gives Phosphorus an eerie green glow. There are other minor changes. Sometimes Rogers does more detailed colors, or Serpy did just a color wash and vice versa. Some furnishings, clothing, and backgrounds have different colors, but no other huge differences. There have been many nights over the last 40 years where to try and relax and calm my thoughts, I will lie in bed and actively try and remember this story. With panel by panel or more often story beat by story beat, it holds together so well. It's how Batman should be done.
0: Yeah, I I recorded with Terry not too long ago for an episode of my uh, Gene Colan showcase uh, podcast that's on FW Presents, uh, and it was actually, it was after he had heard this episode, and he showed me uh, some of the comparisons with the original art, so I could see the way that uh, that uh, Serpe colored uh, Dr. Phosphorus and some of those issues, and yeah, it was really interesting, not just like the, the lack of the green in those original ones, but just, I mean, it, I mean, there were some panels where, yeah, Serpe did do all of the colors in a certain panel, where Marshall Rogers would have kind of washed it all off in a different panel in a single color. So it, it wasn't necessarily always better or always more detailed color in the Marshall Rogers version. It was just kind of like a, a very different thing. Uh, another thing that uh, Terry mentioned that actually one of the other commenters mentioned above was things like the Finger Alley and you know the Spring Arena and and those call bats. I. It, it's hard for me to recognize them now because, I, like, putting it in the context of a time where this might have been the first time where that type of thing was done where, like, a previous creator was given a shout-out or an homage with this type of thing, because it has been done so many times lately. I mean, like, not just, like, I think read so many Batman comments. It's like, how many warehouses are in the Kane district? Or, the, you know, like, right. all those, like, every, every creator who's, like, ever worked on the book has had some signage named after him or some street or alleyway or something like that so you kind of get to the point where it's not special anymore so I never really even notice it anymore even when I'm reading this story from 30 or 40 years ago where it might have been done for the very first time and back then it was a big deal but to me I'm kind of like "Eh, okay those things always wash over me because I've seen it done so many times since.
1: Yeah it even makes its way into other media I mean like uh, when we were talking about the uh, Superman animated series when the the uh Dan Turpin who looks like Jack Kirby is calling out the name of all these cops that mm-hmm. that he's in and they're the name of Kirby's anchors like Coletta and Royer and yes. Gayakoya and things like that, you know, and there's Senate Air Force Base and, you know, thing and, and, and I, I on the Flash, the the nineties Flash series, there's the Infantino Hotel and mm-hmm. things like that, you know. So yeah, it's it's become so commonplace that yeah, I mean honestly I just assume every almost every comic every comic fan knows that that's a call to somebody but we should probably when you know point it out we did with the spring but yeah finger alley was definitely yeah. named and it's often they they mentioned finger alley almost every story that showed the batmobile going into it mm. uh the alley and actually we didn't bring up the batmobile in this issue that rogers draws is that uh neil adam's uh basically like a corvette with the bat hood yeah. uh, with the bat face painted on the the hood that's what a lot of people are calling back to you know what like we talked about the robert pattinson's uh, Batmobile is is basically a modern version of that it's a mm-hmm. it's a muscle car batmobile so it's uh, nice to see here because we're going to be we're going to be seeing more of that and getting toys of it and <laughs> and everything else so yeah it's exciting, very exciting. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh that's it for the feedback, and that's going to wrap up this episode. Uh, we haven't really talked about what we're going to do next. We could certainly take up the next two issues of this series, which uh, feature the Penguin and Deadshot, or we could bounce around. We could do some Neil Adams issues. We could do some Bray Frogel issues. Um, uh, what do you think about letting our Patreon subscribers decide and have a little poll up on the Patreon?
1: Yeah, I like that. Yeah, because we can't, we can't lose, you know. So, I mean, it will, and we'll definitely cover the rest of the, the Marshall Rogers run if we don't cover it now. We'll yeah, definitely,
2: we'll come back. We'll definitely come back to it. But uh, Yeah,
1: if we don't cover it next time, we'll, we'll definitely jump back into it. We can do Grant and Brayfogle. We can do O'Neill and Adams. We can do, you know, Dick any. Dick Spring, yeah, something. Dick, something Dick, so. Bill Finger, Dick Spring. yeah, that'd be great. Any, you know, any, any, any Batman uh, run that's good, we'll talk about. So, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we'll, we will put that poll up with some options on the Patreon uh, for our subscribers and our patrons. Um, give, I don't know, maybe maybe a week uh, for that to be up. That way we at least have some time to settle on which issues we're going to do and then be able to prep before we record. Uh, so, yeah, um, thank you very much uh, for tuning into this episode, as always, guys.
1: Yeah, thanks, guys. what? Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast.
0: You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com.
1: You can find me on Twitter at supermatespod or email me at supermatespodcast at gmail.com.
0: Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com fwpodcasts.
1: You can also support us by leaving a five star review on iTunes. Every review helps iTunes push this podcast to a wider audience. Batman Nightcast is also available on Spotify.
0: This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening.